All right. We are going. Woo-hoo. Welcome to the second episode of Armchair Agents. I'm Ern here with Skurd. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this month for another episode of Armchair Agents. This month, we'll be covering the shocking, the sad, and the still unsolved case that got a young Ern into true crime, the 1996 murder of John Benet Ramsey. Now, I don't think we covered this in our first episode. But Erin and I don't discuss our entire month of research with each other at all, so this will be the first time we've talked through the case from top to bottom, and I couldn't be more excited to hear Erin's take on it. She's been researching this for, what are we at, 24 years now? Yeah, how long has this been going on? <laughs> Since we were little children. So if this sounds like something that's going to be even half as interesting to you as it is to us, why don't you come sit with us? Um, before we get started, our last case was Bryce Laspecia. And do you remember the theory that he thought that something was after him? Oh, he, yeah. He like had a mental break. Mm-hmm. I found out that there was a whole family in Australia that simultaneously had this mental break that they what? thought that the government was after them. And like they ran, they all ran away from home and like hid in the back of a pickup truck and like ran away from their farm and then were later found so in the back of a pickup truck i know it was very confusing but i thought you would find it interesting i really do i wanted to bring that up (laughs) yeah i'm sure we'll have more like previously on updates because i'm going to be thinking about all of these cases now until i'm 95 years old so right they're forever in our heart yeah that's true so tell me who is john benet ramsey yeah so you know that i picked this case because it's intrigued me since I was little. Like, I feel like I was brought up wondering what happened to John Benet. Um, I watched her case unfold as a little girl, and I always thought that we'd find out who actually murdered John Benet. But as the years pass, it seems less and less likely. Um, this time, I found it interesting to intentionally dig deeper into this beyond watching random documentaries as they came out or listening to podcasts as they pop up. And I've got to tell you, I went back and forth as I was researching on who I thought most likely the murder was. And I wasn't expecting that at all because I've always been pretty one-sided on this case. Yeah, I have too, just from, you know, seeing her face on the National Enquirer or the grocery store is probably like my biggest memory of it. And I think you made a good point with doing more research past documentaries because I did go through the the plethora of documentaries for this and watched a handful of them and they really they all say the same thing kind of in a different way maybe you'll get a different quote here or there so like watching those growing up we're like oh yeah we've heard we've heard it all before but like Mm -hmm. holy cow there were so many things i had no idea there's yeah there's so much this case is like pandora's box when you open it up so John Benet was six years old and living in Boulder, Colorado with her mother, Patsy, father, John, and brother, Burke. She was a little beauty queen, and that was something her and her mother did together, as her mother had been Miss West Virginia in her younger years. And I feel like John Benet's done a disservice because she's so much talked about as being a pageant girl, but as you can imagine, she was much more than that. She had a tomboy side to her, liked baseball, climbing trees, 
the gardener said that she loved playing in the leaves in the fall and that she oftentimes picked blueberries from their bushes in the backyard. Oh, which is just sweet. And when people talk about her, they talk about her like she was the wisest, kindest girl they ever knew. She just had a way with people like, like I said, the gardener has all these fond memories of her. So people who were working in their house just thought of thought the world of her. She won her first beauty pageant when she was four. Um, and she practiced a lot, sometimes like seven days a week if she was getting ready for a competition. And I listened to her coach and basically Patsy would just drop her off in the morning and pick her up later that day. So she spent the whole day practicing. Oh, I didn't realize she had like a third party coach. She did. Yeah. And it was kind of like a mother daughter. So it was a 17 year old girl and then her mother and the girl would help. That's adorable. Yeah. The girl would help like mentor her and coach her. And Patsy just really liked this 17 year old girl thought that she was very proper and she really liked how she presented herself. So, um, John Ramsey didn't really agree with her being involved in the pageant life, but he was working a lot and he kind of said he didn't have that big of an impact on the home environment. So her being in pageants, it took the focus off her brother Burke a lot. Friends of the Ramseys say that he was pushed aside so that Patsy could dote on and live vicariously through John Bonet, which I say like friends very loosely, obviously. I hope that true friends are not. Oh yeah, the family friends. <laughs> yes. A lot of people say mm-hmm. that they're family friends and then say things like this where they are just kind of throwing this family under the bus. Um, which maybe just kind of points to the life that they were living where maybe there was a lot of competition or maybe not a lot of authenticity going on in their community. For sure. It seemed to be a lot of like keeping up appearances. Yeah. So a lot of people hate on Patsy for being a pageant mom, but I think it's kind of to each her own. I don't think it's the pageants themselves that were wrong. Um, I think people, people point to the pageants because of the extent that she was making up John Bonet to seem like a woman when she was just a girl. So there was like dyeing her hair, fake nails, maybe some inappropriate dances or like what you would think of as provocative dances coming from a six-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of, I wonder, Oh, go ahead. I wonder if Patsy ever really saw it that way though. Cause I know you mentioned that she was Miss yeah. West Virginia in 1977. I read that her sister Pamela was Miss West Virginia just three years later in 1980. Yeah. And I believe their mother Nedra was a pageant lady Aww. as well. So I, yeah, it's so ingrained in their family. I don't know if they really had the view that we do Yeah, I don't think of like did. outside Miss Western people were like, Oh, it's, you're doing what? But yeah, yeah, they were Southern and that's kind of more Southern culturally normal. Um, mm. So I think, I think what it does point to is that Patsy was very concerned with image. Patsy was concerned with what people thought and she was concerned with success. And I think that that's the extent of what, how deep that can go. The fact that John Bonet was in pageants doesn't make her parents guilty of anything other than enrolling their daughter in an extracurricular. Right. We'd have a lot more murders if pageant mom equaled murderer. Right. Right. Yeah. And it seemed like John Bonet really enjoyed it. She did not seem like she was disliking the pageant life at all. It seemed like oh, she good. just loved it. 
So the family had recently moved to Boulder from Atlanta for John to be a CEO of a computer service company, and they were doing well for themselves. Their house from the outside kind of looks like a quaint cottage, but was actually four floors and 7,000 square feet. I literally- so big. Yes. I don't know how it can be so huge and look so small from the front. Like, oh, it's incredibly misleading. It's so misleading Mm -hmm. because the, I guess because it's built into a a mountain because they're in Colorado. So it's Mm -hmm. like the back is hidden. The back of the house is hidden. So you just see a tiny entrance and then the back is huge. Anyway, they also had two planes and a yacht. So they were doing well. I feel like I can't relate to that, but they were doing great. And they were living the American dream. Like they were living the American dream. They were living. I can't picture having a plane. Two planes. <laughs> Part of me. And two planes. Yacht. And <laughs> Man. Yeah, they were living the high society life that comes with gardeners and cleaners and an immaculate house. And I like to think of Patsy Ramsey as a YouTube mom before that was a thing. Like she was born just a generation too soon. If she were a mom these days, oh, man. she'd be doing grocery hauls. And she'd be doing house tours because she'd be so good at it. She'd be so good at it. I would subscribe (laughs) to her channel because back then she was doing house tours just in person because that was the only outlet for her doing anything like that. She also made Christmas video cards and sent everyone she knew VHS tapes of them saying Merry Christmas from their big, beautiful house. And I don't know why it makes me so sad that she could never do YouTube, but I like think about it more than I should. Like (laughs) she just would have been, she would have thrived. (laughs) She was the early YouTube mailing everyone VHS tapes. So that is extreme dedication. dedication. That's at least two or three stamps per package. Right. (laughs) Right. So to kind of help us get this into perspective of what I mean by this, not only did they have huge Christmas parties for the neighbors, company parties, and all those things that you kind of think about with the Christmas season, they also gave house tours to show off their indoor Christmas decorations. And I have no idea how they marketed this or promoted it, but the family estimated that the Christmas season that John Bonet passed away, over 2,000 people had been in their home. Holy cow. That sounds like an introvert's nightmare to me, but I know it brought her a lot of joy. I did read somewhere too that she had a different Christmas tree in every room and each room had its own like color scheme. Yes. Which I I could kind of see you doing, not going to lie. I I wouldn't hate that. (laughs) I would never spend the money that it took though. (laughs) Like she was so proud of the ornaments that she had collected from like all around the world. And when I was watching her do this tour, I just was thinking like, how much money do you spend on Christmas, girl? Like, (laughs) it's got (laughs) to be crazy. So there's a lot of layers in this case, and I think that is what makes it seem like such a puzzle, and you can kind of change your mind as you hear the different details. So we're going to start with a timeline and share information kind of as the detectives would have come across it. So we're just going to share the timeline is just going to be kind of a very big sweep over, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of dig into details. All right. Give us those facts. So December 26, 1996, Patsy woke up early and went down the back staircase to the kitchen to make coffee. The night before they'd been with friends Fleet and Priscilla White for Christmas dinner, they got home late and went right to bed. 
That day they were going to be leaving on vacation. So she wanted to make sure she had everything done by the time they had to leave. She found on the stairs a three-page ransom letter, which was for Mr. Ramsey. It was left by a, quote, small foreign faction and said that John Bonet was safe and unharmed. The note asked for $118,000 in exchange for their daughter returned. Now, there are so many odd things about this letter. I feel like we could, if we wanted to, talk for days about this letter, but we can try and keep it oh, simple. Yeah. So would you like to read the letter? Oh, I would love to read the letter. You know I had it up. <laughs> All right, it begins, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. And it's signed, Victory, SBTC. That word attache always gets me. I'm just like, I, I try to picture what an attache of adequate size would be. <laughs> How big? Like, is this like a ridiculously huge suitcase that you need to find? I don't know. I picture an attache just being a tiny leather bag that you wear. <laughs> like around your belt. Yeah, like... <laughs> Make sure to bring a tweed bag with a dollar sign written. Right. That's kind of what I think of when I like, like in the old <laughs> movies when people robbed banks. So after finding the letter, Patsy ran upstairs and looked in John Benet's room and she was gone. And then she got her husband. They ran down the stairs and called the police. This happened at 5.52 a.m. And she is frantic at this point, understandably. But her language when she calls 911 is a little bit strange. She never says her name or John Benet's name. She uses very distancing words like, I'm the mother instead of I'm her mother, or we have a kidnapping instead of my daughter was kidnapped. I was thinking 
maybe if she was worried about the ransom note, should could she be like subconsciously distancing herself because of fear of somebody finding out that she called? Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, it did always bother me that the note says, do not call the police or she dies. And she like throws the note onto the ground and hustles over to her kitchen wall phone to make the yeah, call. Yeah, I think like... I would do that, though. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I would do. I know I would be panicking, but I know $118,000 is peanuts to That's them. true. It's such a small amount of money. I wonder if I'd try to pay it and at least wait until 10. I guess. But... Um, according to them, during this time, their son was still fast asleep in bed. Patsy was hysterical on the phone, but they had a huge house, so I guess that's possible. I mean, if you look at the layout of the house, he kind of was on, like, the opposite side, wasn't he? I think the parents were on the second floor, and maybe the kids were on the yeah, third floor. Yeah, and Burke was right versa? underneath them. No, the kids were on... Yeah, the kids were on the second floor, and the parents were on yeah. the third floor, because I remember they caught smack later for, like putting their children on the path of a possible intruder. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. But they didn't, it's weird to me that they didn't mention checking on Burke, the son, even to the police later when they were asked about it. The 911 operator also said that something kind of strange happened. Patsy went from frantically screaming and in full Southern woman meltdown to accidentally not hanging up the phone and being totally fine. So the 911 operator stayed on the line because she thought that the 911 call sounded, in her words, she said it sounded rehearsed. It sounded strange to her. So she said that Patsy turned off her hysterics in an instant after she thought that she hung up the phone. She also said it sounded like there were other people Patsy was talking to. And she said it sounded like it was a man and a child. They had said that Burke wasn't actually awake at this time, and we'll kind of dive into more of those details later. Patsy then called a bunch of people to come over to be with them, Fleet and Priscilla White being some of those people. They were the ones that the Ramses had eaten dinner with the night before, and so they I imagine that they're very close friends to be celebrating Christmas dinner with. Yeah, oh, yeah. and then being the first people that you call when your daughter goes missing. That says a lot, too. I think it was like Flea and Priscilla came over and then maybe Priscilla took yeah. Burke back to their mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the police got there very quickly. Um, I was impressed with their response time. It was like within minutes they were at the house. Yeah. Like four or five minutes yeah. they were there. Officer French was the first one on the scene. And this is when it's claimed that Burke was woken for the first time. When police were doing a cursory check of the house, they shined a light on him and he kind of woke up and was like, oh, what's going on? And that was supposedly for the first time, which I thought was very strange as a parent that I wouldn't want a stranger to be waking up my kid. Like if the police arrived and I hadn't woken my kids up yet, I would want to like run in front of them and make sure that I was blocking a stranger from entering my kid's room. Yeah. Right. The first face you see when they wake up instead of like a cop shining a flashlight. Yeah. And I do... Yeah. And I do know that every person is different and handles stress differently, but that's strange to me. And it kind of reminds me a lot of the Madeline McCann case uh, where the mother finds that her tiny daughter is missing and runs out of the condo down the street to a restaurant, leaving the other two toddlers alone in the house. It just is really strange to me that you wouldn't be hyper vigilant on the kids that are still in the house after losing a child already. Yeah. Maybe they just get so 
hypervigilant about that specific kid that like everything yeah else it's true kind of turns yeah. black you on could the get sides. tunnel vision mm-hmm. so yeah but then after that burke is pretty much right away taken to fleet and priscilla white's house so he's there for just a very short time the police were originally focusing on external things from the house and for whatever reason they weren't really marking things off as crime scenes because i guess it's speculated that they thought like she wasn't there anymore <laughs> So it wasn't a crime scene, like they didn't have a body, so it wasn't a crime scene. But even if it was a kidnapping, you'd still want to close off the area from people. Yeah, you think you'd still search the house and see how they got in or anything along those right. lines that could give you more Or want fingerprints but... from the stairwell, like doorknobs, you'd want. I want fingerprints off so many things yeah. in this case. Uh, but they didn't. So... <laughs> They were allowing massive amounts of people to be in the house. Um, so moving things, fingerprints, DNA was left everywhere. Around 1 p.m., Officer Linda Arndt, which at this time, is she the only officer there still? Yeah, I believe it was actually like, was it when John was gone? Yeah. He like had, 1030 in the yeah. morning that the cops left he too? He left for like 90 minutes. Yeah, he's unaccounted for for a while but i know the police like went to another meeting with the fbi yeah. when when i read about it some made it sound like it was a planned meeting from before and they all had to go just because they were like short-staffed due to christmas but then i read other sources that said like oh they immediately had a meeting about this with the fbi ah. which like i just don't think is as logical Unless they were, again, really on their stuff. I guess they got to the house in four minutes. So yeah. maybe in four hours, they could have called the I FBI. I do know the FBI was the there. They were at the police uh, They oh. were at the police station. They didn't want to come to the house. So they pull, they tapped the Ramsey's phone from the police station. I am waiting for that ransom Yeah, call. that never came. So anyway, Linda Arndt is at the house. She was calling for backup because John was gone. He came back and she noticed that he was extremely agitated. Um, and so she decided that she needed to keep him busy. So, and just to clarify, we don't know if he left the house or not at that point. Yeah, I read somewhere that he went to pick up the mail, but it's also been confirmed that like their mail was, you know, brought to their house like almost every other single person's mail huh. is. I heard him, I heard him directly quoted saying that he was in the office at his house like he was oh. just in his study and I'm like it is a right. seven thousand square foot house so you could easily just disappear in that place absolutely and truly like if my house were storming with people and cops and my daughter was missing i would be the person to lock myself yeah. in for a while too so that'd be really yeah so we don't really know what that means that john was unaccounted for for 90 minutes that doesn't imply guilt it just implies that he was gone for 90 minutes and we don't know doesn't it doesn't look great, look great though <laughs> Not looking great. Um, uh -uh. So Linda decides that she needs to keep him busy. So she tells him, all right, John, we're going to check the house from top to bottom. And at this point, John grabs his friend Fleet and rushes down the stairs, um, which isn't what the officer said. She had said, like, we're like you and I are going to check the house from top to bottom. And he didn't really follow those directions, which I think rubbed her the wrong way. But I also kind of like what you said about tunnel vision. I think he was in so much stress. It could mean nothing. Like it doesn't look great, but it oh, could mean sure. nothing. There are so many parts about this case where it's like, oh, that doesn't look good. But would I act any better? Yeah. 
Can't really say. Yeah. At this point, John does find John Benet's body in the basement wine cellar. Fleet, his friend, noted that John yelled, found her before turning the light on and that there were no windows to give light and that it was very strange to him that John beelined it for the wine cellar. He wasn't turning boxes over. He wasn't looking in other rooms or closets. Fleet did mention that that was strange. And I think Fleet really at that point started to question the Ramses and he kind of changed his level of trust of them at that point. So... John brought her lifeless body up the stairs, put her on the floor in the living room where everyone was walking around and pulled duct tape from her mouth. There is so much speculation about him intentionally contaminating evidence, but I find his actions very normal. I was a first responder and if someone needed CPR or medical attention, you'd want them to be on the ground or a more firm surface than like a couch or a chair. And of course, you take the duct tape off of your daughter's mouth. Yeah, he did get a lot of crap for not putting her on the couch. But I think that would be even stranger if you put, especially like I know her arms were kind of locked above her head at that point. Like she wouldn't be easy to maneuver. She wouldn't like lay comfortably on a couch at this point. So to me, yeah, I totally agree that just putting her on the like on a level ground would make the most sense. I thought it was weird to begin with, though, that he even t- like i guess you would like run over and want to touch him but at the same time like don't don't move her like that's but evidence. He had even known that she was dead like that's what i'm saying like you see your daughter yeah. down there and you like want her to be ta- like i don't know it doesn't seem like he like checked her pulse or anything and then right i watched a couple interviews with him where he said And he said this like consistently the same each time. And it was probably three interviews that I watched. So take that for what you will. But he said that the first emotion that he felt when he found her body was relief. Like, oh, God, like I found her like this can be over until like he realized that she was no longer alive. And I thought that was really interesting because it seems like. He like was so excited for a moment and then I don't know when in the process he made that realization and you're right that it could have been a while like maybe when he picked her up and she didn't quite move right anymore or something along those lines but I just I thought I thought that phrase was really interesting that he like he said several times that he was just so relieved when he found right which I feel like that's a very like raw and real statement absolutely and if he were guilty of anything, I think that would be a very hard statement to say. Yeah, that's that's what I had written too, is that if you had known that she was dead already, you probably wouldn't have thought to say that you yeah. were relieved or hopeful. It, see, it does seem like a really genuine in, like uh, emotion from him, which hurt yeah. my heart, as did this entire but case. But finding her with the light off and beelining it to the cellar, though... That's suspicious. Interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that they had been in the basement before. Like, a couple cops had done a right. super cursory search of, like, walking through the house. What creeps me out is that there's a picture that one of the officers took of the closed wine cellar door on his, like, first uh-huh. lap around this huge mansion. And he said that, like, it haunts him to this day that he didn't go in there. But truly, he was just looking for points of exit. And since the door was, like, latched from the outside, you wouldn't have been able to do that if you were right. leaving the house. So he was like, mm, latch door and, like, took a picture of that sure. section of the house and, and kept walking. And, like, whoo, it gave me the shivers to look at that picture. Yeah, the police's initial check, that's the one where they woke Burke up. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. They also, I heard another officer say that they tried the door and that it was jammed or locked. They couldn't open it. Hmm. But they weren't really, like what you said, they weren't concerned with opening everything because they thought she was gone. Like they took the note for what it was. Yeah. They thought that she was gone. So at this point, they moved from working on a missing persons case to a murder investigation. Her autopsy was done the next day. She had head injuries, including a massive skull fracture that had bleeding and bruising on the brain. Her hands were tied together and she had a white cord around her neck, which was made into a garrote. Garrot. 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 Which was made into a garrot with her mother's paintbrush. A garrot is a crude device used to make strangling someone easier. So it's basically like a cord with two pieces of wood or something hard on the end so that you can strangle somebody easier with the cord, which is so excessive Ugh. for this little girl. I have goosebumps that already reading had yeah. head injuries. Her bladder was empty and there was urine and blood found in her underwear, along with a piece of undigested piece of pineapple in her stomach. The autopsy said the strangulation killed her, but the head wound would have made her unconscious. And then Later, there was other experts who went over the autopsy and said that they actually believed that the head wound killed her. Um, so I think that is one of those things that we'll find happens in this case a lot, is that so mm -hmm. many experts have looked into all these details and so many experts are divided on what they think. And they're all like really positive about their feelings. They are, about and it. they all have amazing credentials. It's not like <laughs> random people who are doing these things, but like the like you, you and, and I. I doing this. It's like the best of the <laughs> best of investigators and they're divided on what they think actually happened to this little girl. I will say thank you for reading the autopsy report. I couldn't have gotten through that. It was awful. I did read it myself. It's all available yeah. online. There are pictures. Guys, don't, don't, don't look, look at, at the it. pictures. I regret that. I regret it so yeah. much. It's, you can't it's take that out of your mind. Forever. That's why podcasts are the best for true crime because it's a lot less yeah, intrusive in your, in your mind, in your mental space. Yeah, I think that's what really turned the corner for me on like being so emotionally invested in this was like reading the autopsy of a child and looking at the pictures like, oh man, that was my first John Bonet related cry. Yeah. There were more, but <laughs> there were more. But that was the first one where I was like, this is awful. Yeah. Like I just, I spent some time actually being so frustrated that like we couldn't do anything like I got so upset looking at that and I'm like God, like I can't you know I'm just a random girl from Wisconsin like I can't do anything that people haven't done before and then I realized that we can do something and we are doing it so that yeah. made me feel a little better yeah talking about it listening to her case keeping her case alive that is like basically all that we can do as armchair agents here. Mm -hmm. So that's like, um, there was a small amount of DNA called trace DNA found in her underwear and under her fingernails. It was such a small amount of DNA that it doesn't really indicate a lot of anything. Um, some experts said she could even have gotten that DNA under her fingernail from scratching somebody on the back of their clothes. Like she was very often seen with her arm around oh, wow. people and yeah. They said that she could have gotten it under her fingernails, like scratching somebody's back as she had her arm around them. Basically, every picture that you mm -hmm. see where she's with somebody, she has her arm around them. So that was like kind of her tagline. She was known for that. She seemed like a hugger for yeah. sure. Yeah, And they were just at a party with tons of people. He was. And they said, too, that that trace DNA could have gotten from under her fingernails into her underwear just when she was going to the bathroom normally. Mm. And 
Makes that sense. the DNA was pretty, there's a lot of speculation that the DNA is actually multiple people's DNA coming together to make one profile. So it seems it's highly yeah. possible that the DNA that they're using is corrupted. Right. The medical examiner did say that she had been abused that night and that there were some evidence of long-term abuse. Another highly contested Another point. Another highly contested case. point because <laughs> John Bonet's doctor came forward to try and deny the evidence of long-term abuse and said that he knew that she hadn't been abused, like her pediatrician, just her normal doctor. But mm-hmm. he wouldn't have really known that as her pediatrician. The fact that he came forward kind of, I don't even know how to describe it. It kind of set the hair on the back of my neck on edge because I felt like it was he paid off to say that by her family. What was his motivation in coming forward and saying that he knew for a fact that she hadn't been sexually abused? Because if every kid's doctor knew if they were being abused or not, abuse wouldn't really exist as we know it. Like the the reason that abuse exists is because it's so secretive. Mm Mm-hmm. I do believe that she had gone to this doctor, I mean, so many times in the last year or something. I should have looked this up. I know there were like specific numbers set on how much she went there, but I read that like three of those appointments were related to what they had cited as like vaginal irritation. And it ended up, they thought that it was like from her bubble bath. Yeah, they thought she she just had had like an allergy. Yeah, but... And so I get that. Like, I get that she had been to the doctor a lot. She had issues with bedwetting. Mm -hmm. So all of those things. But I still felt like that doesn't mean that the doctor knows for a fact anything. Like, because abuse is so hidden. Like, nobody knows for a fact Mm -hmm. anything except for the person that's being abused. So it kind of, to me, it showed how influential the Ramses were and how much special treatment they got by those around them and the other influential people in the community and that they they didn't want it getting out that their daughter had been abused before was kind of how i saw it but i also like don't want to lose what you said where like she had been to the doctor multiple times for issues related to like bedwetting and like oh yeah so there's there's a lot going on and that's another thing like the evidence in the autopsy saying that she was sexually abused, I guess that is like contested. Some experts say that it indicates mm-hmm. something and some experts say that it doesn't indicate anything. I got to say, it's so confusing to a lay person like <laughs> myself where it's like it's, it's completely polar opinions and I just don't know enough to know where they're getting these like these declarations from I'm looking at evidence and I can draw my own conclusion based off of the very scant knowledge I have especially in in this type of issue but it's just to have them be so polarized makes me wonder like are you guys like reading the same thing yeah I did read the whole report and it was rough yeah it was awful it was awful I'm frowning (laughs) So after all of that, John and Patsy weren't really questioned. Burke was questioned one time by a counselor or a social worker, but not by police. And then, oh, I guess he was questioned again as an 11-year-old. So he was questioned again two years later. But that initial, like, Mm -hmm. initially investigating the case, um, he was investigated and his parents weren't. So they they refused to be questioned by police. And then they went on television and did nationwide interviews for the press. Which is a bold move. Bold yeah, move. I had read that they said that they didn't trust the Boulder police to be unbiased. Mm-hmm. 
which like they they were yeah. extremely biased so i do see where they were coming from on that but to turn around then and go on tv again not <laughs> look. yeah it um and it does kind of point to their like their rich whiteness that they yep. could just say no to the police it really does like, yeah no i don't want to be interviewed like, today oh, darn it they said no they said no well they were i believe told to treat them with quote kid gloves yes well. the police mm -hmm. were told to treat them with kid gloves they were told that the ramses were basically royalty in their town and that they weren't to upset them so they weren't questioned until five months later and they had some they had some what would it be called requirements to be questioned so they they required that they be able to see their initial statements together with their lawyers before the interviews and they had time frames like the interview won't go longer than this and they had um requested that they know what questions would be asked before wow. the interview i wonder if anyone else has ever gotten that in the history of a murder investigation yeah i don't know Maybe they have that right, and most people are just more compliant. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I know they did get lawyers immediately, and they also each got their own lawyer, which right. I, you know, being a true crime junkie, that's always something that's stressed is to always get a lawyer. I don't think that reeks of guilt as much as it reeks of wealth. It's true. And the fact that they got <laughs> two separate lawyers, a lot of people say that that uh, indicates that there was a conflict of interest between the two like um oh. that they that the lawyer couldn't serve both of them well that they needed separate lawyers interesting but i also hmm. think that could just also reek of wealth <laughs> yeah it, it you does. could yeah but the fact that they wanted their initial statements and that they had all of these stipulations about the interview mm -hmm. but yeah and like you said they were told to be treated with kids gloves and so they were <laughs> mm-hmm that interview happened five months later. And that's kind of the timeline of like when the case, the information of the case is now kind of on the table for the police to start trying to pick apart. So we're gonna try and do that too. We're gonna try and pick apart some of these pieces as the detectives would have and kind of lay out the evidence as it unfolded to the police. So they initially discovered a broken window in the basement that John told them he broke months before when he forgot his keys. This makes no sense to me. Like he has gobs of money and a huge broken window. And I feel yeah. like of gobs. Gobs. And <laughs> I feel like if I broke my window, I'd have to like find a free Saturday where my husband and I could install it ourselves and it would take a chunk of our savings. But not the Ramsey. Right. Like it's so out of character for them to have a broken window in their house, I feel like. Yeah, they'd have to make one phone call yeah. and do nothing else. Or just that. leave a note for their gardener, like, to take care of it. That's like, true. <laughs> so they had a broken window for months in the middle of winter in Colorado. Like, that was a big, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't even think about the winter yeah, part. Yeah, I right. think their kids played down there, so it's not like it was in an mm -hmm. attic or something that was never used. If I recall correctly, looking at the floor plans, I think it was actually on the far side of Burke's train room. So they were they were down there a lot using it. So for hmm. people so concerned about image. They're concerned about image, but not so much home security. Not home security. That's true. Or heating. Or heating. <laughs> yes. 
there was a suitcase that was pushed under the window that the family said hadn't been there before. And the Ramseys thought that it was an exit point for the murderer. Did you by chance to find what was in that suitcase? No. Oh, <laughs> oh, Ern. In that suitcase was a, a, okay, allegedly. I found some sources that said this. I found many other places that didn't mention it at all. But like we've mentioned, we went real deep on this research. So what yeah. I found was this suitcase contained a bed sheet stained with semen and a Dr. Seuss book. What? Mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. DNA check? The uh, They did. Whose is it? They did. Allegedly. Huge allegedly. It's in italics. <laughs> it's in like 36 font. Allegedly, it was John Andrews Seaman. John's older son from his first marriage. Her half-brother. Mm-hmm. Uh. Maybe it was his suitcase that he brought back his one laundry item when he came. And a book. There was something else. There was a third item, too, but I can't recall off the top of my head. Huh. I, I promise those are the two important points. The two important <laughs> Yeah. Where was John Andrew when this happened? He was in Atlanta. Okay, so he was pretty far away. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, like, mind blown. <laughs> and that's so embarrassing for him. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's oh, true. dude. Like, why Why in the suitcase and, the, like, the book? Like, none of the connotations of the book in there with semen are beneficial to you. Right. Ugh. Investigators weren't convinced that this would have been the exit point of, the intru- of an intruder, a potential intruder, because there were cobwebs on the window that were old and dusty. Mm-hmm. Um which means that the cobwebs would have been there for a while, which I guess collaborates John's story of having broken the window months earlier. Oh, yeah, because I was just thinking, well, how did he get in the window then if there's cobwebs? Yeah, so he said that it was Okay, it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. An adult could get in and out of that window, but the question is if that happened. I I mean, the question is, like, do the cobwebs prove anything? There were no footprints outside the snow, but there was a sidewalk. They had an alarm, but they didn't use it. I thought it was weird that the police were so stuck on the window and they were like, and this makes me feel feel empathy for the, the Ramses because the police kept bringing up the window like, well, there were cobwebs on it. So clearly the somebody in the house must have murdered her because there was oh, no exit. The cobweb approach. The cobweb approach. <laughs> but there were several doors and windows that were left open. Like they didn't, they notoriously didn't lock their doors. So someone could have easily entered and exited the house without that window, which makes me think it was someone preying on the family that could have just had them as an easy in, like a a very easy house to target. Yeah. Weren't their windows kind of propped open with Christmas light cords too? Yes, because they had Mm -hmm. a bunch of Christmas lights outside and houses didn't used to be made with electric outlets outside so like we have this issue our house is over 100 years old and we have no outlets outside so if we want to put christmas lights we have to like figure out how to crack a window yeah like have a door like the ramsey approach the ramsey approach you're never gonna think of the same (laughs) i did also read that they had nine exterior doors and they had 104 windows yes 100 of which were facing outside yeah even john benet had a balcony on her room like oh she did it was gorgeous yeah 
It was discovered pretty early that the ransom letter was written on stationery of Patsy's with her pen and that there was a practice letter that was drafted and that when the writer was done, they put the writing pad and pen back where they belonged. In two separate locations. In two separate locations. Yeah. Like, Which is weird. Yeah. But they were back where they belonged. It was noted that the author of the letter was trying to disguise their handwriting. And although handwriting analysis isn't allowed in court as evidence because it's not an exact science, handwriting analysis was done and connected with Patsy's handwriting with over 200 similarities. And then some other handwriting analysis said it wasn't her at all. Here we go again. So here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Patsy had always denied that she had anything to do with the note and claimed that the paper and pen must have been stolen in one of the Christmas tours when 2,000 people went through their house. Um, If the letter was written by an intruder, it would have been strange to write such a repetitive and long letter because every word that they wrote was more time in the house. But I watched on a couple of the, the documentaries that were out, they did like not even dramatic reenactments, but regular reenactments of them writing the note where it's like, all right, these five people around a table are going to write the note. And it took them, what, like 21 minutes to write it? Yeah. So long. And if you were trying to disguise your handwriting, it would be like really slow and well thought out, which truly this one does not look like. It's really shaky and looks tasty, but still 20 minutes at regular speed. Yeah. So I was thinking of you a lot as I was researching this because I know how much you love handwriting. And like some of my earliest memories are of you changing your handwriting. Like we would sit next to each other in the um, in the gym with our backs on the brick wall and you would write the same word over and over again and have it just change your handwriting for each time you wrote it. Memories with our backs against the brick wall are some of my fondest and strongest (laughs) memories of high school. Definitely fondest. That was the most fun I've had. But yeah, you're totally right. I do uh, like calligraphy or hand lettering as a hobby. And I have actually found like papers from when I was a kid, maybe nine or ten. So geez, just a year or two after after this took place where I'm like writing my mother's name in a bunch of different handwritings and pens. And it kind of looks like Sharpies, to be honest. So <laughs> that, that's a weird connection. But yeah, I, it would it will not surprise you, as you already said, to learn that that is the part that I dug into in this case the most was the ransom note. I have I think nine pages of notes and four and a half of them are on the ransom note. (laughs) What other things did you find that like intrigued you about it? You are in for a treat because I put probably, man, six, seven hours of just (laughs) staring at handwriting, reading about ransom notes, looking up movie quotes. I, I got really into this note. It's super interesting. So one of the things that I found the the most interesting is that it kind of seems like a random hodgepodge of what ransom notes are portrayed as in movies. And to be specific, there are several near direct quotes from movies in the note, such as the movie Ransom, which actually premiered like just a scant month before her murder. It was in theaters and it contained the phrases, Do not involve the police or the FBI. If you do, I will kill him. 
and it also repeats the phrase "I will kill him" three times, whereas the ransom rans, whereas the Ramsey ransom note. Oh, it's hard to say. <laughs> says she dies four times. Like it ends sentences in that. Yeah. So it really reeks of that influence. Okay. And Dirty Harry is a movie in which the the main character is running all over town trying to fulfill these ransom note obligations, which were exhausting, as we heard about <laughs> in, in the Ramsey note. I'm just going to call it that. That might be easier. And the whole time this guy is running around trying to follow the instructions, the girl that he's trying to save is already dead. And it also says in that note, if you talk to anyone, I don't care if it's a Pekingese pissing against a lamppost, the girl dies. Whereas in our ransom note, it says, if we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. So you can mm -hmm. see the parallel there. Mm -hmm. And finally, in the movie Speed, it says, do not attempt to grow a brain. I think it's like Keanu on the bus says this to somebody. I haven't. I haven't seen it in like a decade. I don't remember. <laughs> somebody, I know somebody says it on the phone, I think. And in the, in our Ramsey note, it says, don't try to grow a brain, John. So there's clearly like tons of parallels between recent movies and like, here, there is, what yeah. are ransom notes like? Like, crap, I, I've never had to write one before. Like, <laughs> I don't know. And the Ramseys have said that like, they weren't really movie people. But when you look at all the crime scene pictures, like we did in Burke's train room, one of the whole walls is covered in movie posters. Hmm. So why would you say that? Like, why would you even say that? Like, oh, we're not movie people. Right? I don't know if, like, somebody asked them directly, like, do you happen to watch a lot of movies? And they're like, no, no. But, like, secondly, when would the Ramses ever watch movies? Like, they don't really picture me as, like, a downtime kind of family. But I don't know. Maybe the posters were collectible and expensive and they just exactly thinking. <laughs> yeah I, I don't know to me they don't strike me as avid movie watchers but maybe they had a movie theater in their house they could have i initially when you said that it had premiered a month earlier i my initial thought was like did the ramses get to see it before that because they're so rich oh maybe <laughs> they they are movie people yeah just like you know the whole note it it gives so many details about things that like don't necessarily need details like what stuck out to me is that it said you will withdraw $118,000 from your account well yeah where else are you going to get it and it like instructs you on like what kind of attache to bring and then you put it in a brown paper bag and it's just like who cares just like give them the just give them the money like it doesn't seem to matter i had also uh -huh. read some speculations that the whole adequate size attache <laughs> bit i love that phrase um is like if the ramses had written it that was their cover-up to explain why john would be walking out of the house with a huge heavy suitcase at mm. some point like perhaps if they were to remove her body from the premises they wanted to have that on lock to be like oh he was just going to the bank in in the dark in the middle of the night like to me that's too forward thinking for people that aren't like already pro murderers but right if who this, knows? yeah if the rams if the ramses did write the ransom note this would have been their first one and it would have been on the fly because their daughter died probably accidentally Quick, make it a kidnapping yeah it's i don't know it's possible for sure like the note is 
it starts off being addressed to Mr. Ramsey, but through the note, it changes course and starts calling him John, which would be, it of course, a very term personal. of familiarity. Yeah. yeah, it seems very personal. Even the like, don't grow or grow a brain, John, it almost, it, it kind of sounds like an angry wife. Like, I hate to it say sounds, that, but it kind too, of sounds yeah. like, and do the dishes. I'm sick of always being the one to do them. Right. Like, is kind Use of that good <laughs> Southern common sense. Like, I wonder if that was a phrase that she threw at him while they were fighting oh. or something. I don't know. Like, we, you had mentioned her Christmas videos that uh, she sent yeah. out, which I'm still picturing, like, mailing VHS tapes. But I did see a clip of one of those. And, like, truly the beginning is them, like, Merry Christmas from the Ramsey household. John isn't here to celebrate with us. And like, it's just immediate digs right at John. We're like, we get it. He's busy. He's like making billions of dollars so you can live in this huge house. But I thought it was just weird to say that. Like, clearly you can see that he's not there. Nobody would ask, like, you can't respond to the VHS tape and be like, where's John? Like, I don't know. I don't know. You're, I did get the same impression you did too, where it sounds like just an annoyed... I hate to say woman, but it, it kind of does, at least towards the end. It's, like, exasperated in tone. It is. Mm. And the, and there is a personal, aside from tone, there's a personal touch in the $118,000 was his exact Christmas bonus. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. is a crazy Christmas bonus, by the way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it so, really is. And it's such a specific number. But It was so but, small for him. It was That's such true. a small amount of money for the Ramses, the hundred eighteen thousand dollars. Yeah, his company had just grossed a billion dollars. Um, he had gotten an award for their company grossing a billion. Wow! And oh yeah, didn't they have like a party, or like a billion dollar party or yes, something? Yes, they just did. The they got before? a plaque yeah. from the town. They got a plaque. <laughs> they got oh, a... awful. <laughs> yeah, from the uh, Chamber of Commerce gave them a plaque. Whoa! So. Something we to strive for. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> okay, I like your outlook better. That was uh, so uh, interesting. Yeah, it the the note, it seemed like kind of like what you said, it was somebody trying to sound a certain way, like somebody trying mm-hmm. to sound like English wasn't their first language, but then they use words like attache and spell it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> and other words are spelt incorrectly that Mm-hmm. Um, it just kind of seems like a cover. Yeah, business and possession, which were in the first couple sentences, were spelled wrong. So it's been theorized that, like, oh, they were trying to hide their intelligence at first, but then they just, like, slipped up and wrote attache and added the accent. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, oh God, there's so there's so many things about it that are, that are strange. I, uh, it's yeah it could it could go one of the other the thing that sticks out to me the most that seems like it has that personal touch is that patsy said she went down the back spiral staircase and found it found this note laid out on the bottom of those stairs but in a house that was that big it was a huge house would that be where a random intruder would have put that note yeah and one of what four staircases in the house and so i know this is their favorite staircase Right, knowing that she was going to go down the back staircase would just not be where I would put it as a random intruder. I would, I don't know where, I've always 
So, <laughs> I've always wondered where I'd put a ransom note. <laughs> well, we've had, so we've had foster kids that were teenagers and they sleep in really late and they don't yeah. know our house very well. Like, I don't know their routine. I don't know That's them. True. They don't know us. Mm-hmm. And so I oftentimes will want to leave a note in the morning. And I always have this huge Aww. dilemma of like, where do I put this note? <laughs> yeah. Where are they going to find this? Because do I put it on the fridge? Maybe they're not going to get up and go to the fridge. Like, mm-hmm. do I put it on the bathroom mirror? Do I put it on their door? Do I put it on their forehead? Like, their so that forehead. when they wake up, it's just there. But like, I don't know. So that I think that's why it sticks out to me so much is that I have had this dilemma of where do I leave this note? Like yeah. so many times. And oh, I so, didn't even think about that. Especially you're right for someone unfamiliar with your house. Yeah. How would you know where to put that? And if they were unfamiliar with the Ramsey house, how would they know to grab a pad of paper from the rear hall of the home and then walk over into the kitchen to get a Sharpie from an orange cup underneath the wall phone? And then put them both back in their correct spot. And then put the note on the back staircase. Yeah, all of that really reeks of comfort with the environment. Yes. Um, Jim Fitzgerald is a linguistic specialist, and he said he thought that the letter was written by a native English-speaking woman over 30 years old, was his mm. like kind of conclusion on the ransom note. Um, the note gave instructions on when they would be calling to arrange a money pickup and drop-off, of John Bonet, but the call never came, and police, police kind of said that John and Patsy never talked about it not coming, and that it they didn't feel like the call not coming affected them a lot. They said it almost seemed like they knew that it wouldn't come. Yeah, I read that too, and that it bothered me as well that they like didn't seem to notice when ten o'clock came and went. Mm-hmm. And I would absolutely be staring at my phone for between the hours of 8 and 10 a.m. Like with my satchel of money, like <laughs> waiting, like ready to dash out at any moment and like follow the instructions. But and, I, and you had mentioned they tapped the phones, too. So like truly the police mm-hmm. were just going along with the ransom note. And it is suspicious that the family was not. It is suspicious. Yeah. I'll give you that. Um so, Oh, go ahead. (laughs) So it has been said that the Ramsey ransom note was the longest ransom note that the FBI had ever had. So, of course, I I wanted to fact check that and Mm -hmm. see, like, well, is that true? And no, it's not true. (laughs) However, it is the longest ransom note from a case where there was no kidnapping. So that alone makes it an anomaly. Like, we spent at least 21 minutes writing a note in Sharpie, which still sticks with me. I just wouldn't grab a Sharpie, but that's, again, that's I'm just a freak you. with my pens. Yeah, nobody yeah exactly. <laughs> Don't nobody look around my apartment for how many pens there are. Or was it was it pure genius that they picked a Sharpie? Because it's hard to, it kind of bleeds a lot, so it's hard to do handwriting analysis on a Sharpie? Yes, that's a very good point. That, the tool that they used does make it a lot harder to get a lot of the fine details of like the handwriting. But before I read you my page and a half on my breakdown of handwriting, I want to tell you about cases where there have been other very long ransom notes. The Ramsey ransom note is 374 words and 2,064 characters. It is about two and a half pages handwritten. Handwritten is interesting to me. If you are 
gonna leave a ransom note unless you're super good at disguising your handwriting which again I've been practicing for a long time I don't know why I was as a kid I was kind of obsessed with the idea of like how I could change my identity and start a new life <laughs> and that, <laughs> that's a normal thing for a 13 year old to be into right but I was I was definitely interested in that and I always like like you had mentioned would would write things in several different ways but the way that they described like this note and how they got handwriting samples of like they just read the letter to Patsy and then she had to like frantically scribble along like it's a tedious mindful process for me to write differently sometimes my writing looks different um uh -huh. depending on like my mood seems to be the biggest indicator which is weird like if you would to flip through my journal you can definitely sense my mood just from how like slashy and angry the handwriting is but yeah so <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting that the note was handwritten because typically that's a huge indicator of like who you are but we'll we'll look at a lot of other notes and they're I don't think any of them are handwritten so the oh and I should also mention the Ramsey note was at about a ninth or tenth grade reading level and this is just like you know a computer analyzed it and said the reading level and I looked up the reading mm -hmm. level of the average American and it's actually seventh to eighth grade mm-hmm so it Ah, mm -hmm. that's yeah, pretty so this is like a, a smarter than average American, yeah. we could say that that wrote this. And that, that seems to be yeah. consistent with what you said dude found where he said like a, an adult over 30. Makes sense. So the uh -huh. Leopold and Loeb ransom note was 310 words, uh, 1,770 characters in this. Oh, this was also a 11th to 12th grade reading level. So pretty high. So a, sm a smarter kidnapper here. So this case um, was the case of two men, Leopold and Lobel, their last names. Um, they were 18 and 19 when they kidnapped and murdered 14-year-old Bobby Franks in May of 1924. They said they did it as, quote, a demonstration of their ostensible intellectual superiority, thinking that they could get away with the perfect crime. In an attempt to hide their motive and the nature of the crime, they decided to demand a ransom and devised an intricate plan for collecting it, involving a long series of complex delivery instructions to be communicated like bit by bit over the phone. So they'd give them one piece of information and then call back later and give them the next step, you know, so it's kind of like a, a treasure hunt for your child. Uh -huh which is terrible. My apologies. They then typed the final set of instructions involving the actual money drop in the ransom note using a stolen typewriter. I think it was like from their dorm or something at the time. Huh. Ultimately, it, it didn't work and they were caught and sentenced to life plus 99 years. And I just want to read to you a little excerpt from the beginning of this letter because as I read these, I like my goosebumps got bigger and bigger in like the Ramsey note is always treated as such an anomaly, as such a weird thing. But then as I started to read these notes, like a lot of reoccurring themes in here. So this note begins, Dear Sir, as you no doubt know by this time, your son has been kidnapped. Allow us to assure you that he is at present well and safe. You need fear no physical harm for him, provided you line up carefully to the following instructions and to such others as you will receive by future communications. Should you, however, disobey any of our instructions, even slightly, his death will be the penalty. 
it, it goes on. That sounds so similar. It? Yeah, it sounds like it the sounds 1920s so version of the Ramsey note. It does. It's kind of awkward to read because it's written in like ye old 1920s English. But yeah, it's, it's like freakishly <laughs> alike. So it, it then goes on to detail like incredibly specific instructions for how to get the money, how to package it, how to move it from one package to another, how to wrap it in this kind of paper and then seal it. It said like ensure that all openings are sealed with wax or like just so specific huh. yeah i guess there would be some form of like dominance being played over these people in the ransom note that like oh, yeah. get it in this type of bill um because you're trying to exert your dominance over them mm-hmm. like you better follow all these like inane instructions yeah uh so next we have the barbara mackle ransom note which was three pages long. It was a typewritten 970 words. Remember, the, the Ramsey note was 374. And this was a ninth to 10th grade reading level. And holy cow, I like had to stop myself from reading about this whole story. So <laughs> in December of 1968, Barbara was a 20-year-old student at Emory College who was staying at the Roadway Inn in Decatur, Georgia with her mother because she had the Hong Kong flu. I, of course, went on a tangent about the Hong Kong flu. It was the the, Hong Kong flu. Yeah, very (laughs) timely for the times that we are in currently. The Hong Kong flu was the pandemic of 1968, which... I didn't even know there was such a thing. Me neither. I read a little bit more about it. It was like, started in Hong Kong six months later. It was in the States and like it swept through the States really quickly it had a lower death count because there's like there are previous flus that I believe were like the H3N2 kind. So like some people had immunity, but it like huh. it followed the same pattern that we're living right now where it spread across the whole world and just swept through and like everything closed down. Like she left school and then her mom came. What? Yeah, her mom came to bring her to this <laughs> hotel it's, it's creepy yeah her mom brought her to this hotel because she was so ill and then was going to take her back home to i think they were like coral springs or coral gables florida like somewhere in florida mm-hmm. for for christmas so on uh, december 17th a man named gary christ knocked on the motel door dressed as a policeman and told her that her boyfriend Stuart had been in a car accident and once they allowed them inside, it was him and an accomplice. Um, I believe the accomplice's name was Ruth. I didn't write it down. Sorry, Ruth. Oh, um, at that time, Ruth was dressed like a man as well. So she was in disguise. They got into the, the motel room. They chloroformed the mom. They got Barbara Ugh. into the trunk at gunpoint and kidnapped her. It gets crazier. They buried Barbara in a like a wooden box coated in fiberglass that had an air pump a battery powered lamp water laced with sedatives and a food supply and via the ransom note they demanded five hundred thousand dollars which is 3.5 million dollars today from her dad who was like a rich florida i think he said like land owner land something and they provided a very long and specific typewritten note so let's let's read the beginning of this i'm intrigued yeah it's such a cool story i'm gonna have to read more about barbara mackle so her note begins sir your daughter has been kidnapped by us and we now hold her for ransom she is quite safe if somewhat uncomfortable we offer no proof of our possession of her at this time 
It will arrive by mail in a few days. Barbara is presently alive inside a small capsule buried in a remote piece of soil. She has enough food and water and air to last seven days. At the end of the seven days, the life-supporting batteries will be discharged and her air supply will be cut off. It goes on and on and on for several pages. Uh, later we read, when you arrive at the pickup site, you will know it by a signal of sh three short flashes repeated continuously from a flashlight directed at the windshield of your car. When you see the signal, you will stop the car and immediately take the suitcase towards the light. The light will be mounted on top of a box. The suitcase should be placed within the box. You will then return to your car and proceed back up the street in the direction from which you came and go home. I mean, talk huh. about overly specific. Like right. instructions that don't need to be said. Get back in your car, go back the same way and go home. They know. They know how to get there. They know they have to take their car. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's just like, it's... This note is, is so long, but ultimately, Barbara was rescued after three days in the box, and she was a bit dehydrated, but unharmed. I, uh, <laughs> I'm so intrigued and freaked out. <laughs> I tried to picture the box and then immediately regretted it. Yeah. Thing of nightmares. Yikes. Okay, any other crazy oh, notes? Oh, I got more notes for you. I have, okay. I have one more note for you. Keep them coming. <laughs> Here is a note ultimately referred to as the Allen letter, which was a note by a supposed accomplice of the Oakland County child killer who killed at least four kids in the Detroit area from 1976 to 1977. It was mailed to psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Lando, and it was 821 words long at only a fifth or sixth grade reading level. This note was just full of misspellings and it was like full of guilt it's a <laughs> you thought oh. you think the other letters were weird this letter takes takes weird to a whole whole other level it begins in all caps most very important most urgent please dr danto i'm going to try to read the misspellings for you i am disparate and nearly gone crazy and haven't got no place left to turn I'm going to commit suicide if you can't help me. Please don't give up the killer to the police. You must help me as there is no one else I can turn to. This is for real. I know who the killer is. I live with him and I am his slave. He whips me and beats me all the time. And he will kill me if I, he finds out that I have written this letter. That's the beginning. Here's how it ends. I never, never want it to be like this with little children dead. If you will help me, please, please. There will be no t'other hope. You tell me it be all right with code in Sunday papers this Sunday, News Free Press. You do like other letter you write on front page of papers this Sunday. It be to say, weather bureau, say, trees bloom in three weeks. I know you get my letter and understand. It mean I can trust you. I set up meeting with you. No more little children's die. Please help me, please. I feel so bad like garbage not deserve to live anymore. Maybe I kill so first, must get out of this some way. Please help me. Huh. You said that's a fifth grade reading level? Fourth and fifth grade? Fifth and sixth grade? Yeah. Fifth and sixth grade. Mm -hmm. Wow. I feel a lot better about my homeschooling skills. Yeah, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a pretty generous, especially cons like, okay, they'll, they'll misspell stuff, but like so much more than I even read and it's- The repetitive? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just like the comma placement and the sentences are like, they don't, they don't break up in the right spot, but- 
it seems like somebody either like mentally ill or under tons of dress or like inhibited in other ways wrote it. I again started researching this and was like, no, stop, like back to don't don't get off track. So I don't know if they ever determined who did it, but another thing to for me to put on the backlog. I think the ransom note, if it was an intruder, this kind of idea of like it couldn't have been an intruder because it's so weird and so strange. Mm-hmm. It must have been the Ramses doesn't actually fit with the theory of an intruder because if you go in if you break into somebody's house and you're going after a little girl like you're not in your right state of mind and so things not happening as they should is not like the fact that a ransom note was left even though she wasn't alive anymore yeah that's weird enough it's weird but like somebody's already go somebody's already breaking into somebody's house and hurting a little girl their actions aren't making sense already. Right. So the fact that like the continuation of this chaos kind of makes sense. Yeah, that's a good point. If you are in the right side of mind or the kind of person who would murder a six-year-old so violently, of course your note's not going to be logical. Right, because you must not be a logical person. (laughs) Yeah. man. So it kind of, you know, like everything in the Ramsey case, it also would make sense if the parents did it to try and cover it up, that it wouldn't make sense because they've never, they're not really writing a ransom note. Mm-hmm. They are just trying to cover something up that then also, uh, so many things. <laughs> That's exactly so how many- I view it. I just trail off and like make uh, uh, noises. And <laughs> I just, I never know. I just scowl and turn away. But what one more note right. for you. Um, the pizza okay. bomber, which you may have watched on uh, Netflix. It's the worst. Don't watch it. I regret it, too. I didn't want to watch that man explode. Netflix. Just listen to podcasts. Yeah. Just listen to podcasts. Interesting story. Listen about it. But you'll probably recall them that they had left several pages of not even detailed instructions, but hand-drawn maps of the many stops that they wanted their poor hostage to make. Yeah. they, They took a man hostage, a pizza delivery man. Let that sit with you for a while. They took a pizza delivery man hostage and then tied a bomb to him. Around his neck. And then he, around his neck. And then he had to go and kind of complete like a, what is it called? Where you do this with like a group of high schoolers where you like go around town, like a scavenger (gasps) hunt kind of a thing. (laughs) And like, yeah, like you said, like he would find a map and he would be like, oh, McDonald's, I have to go to the second flower pot on the left under the the giant golden arches and find my next clue and he would find his next clue and while a bomb is ticking around his neck while the bomb was ticking around his neck horrible it was the worst don't watch it i mean maybe (laughs) no no, don't watch it listen to it all right so let's let's talk handwriting analysis okay you know it piques my interest so i will first tell you what examiners typically compare in handwriting analysis. I I found a quote from, oh gosh, I wish I knew. It might be a court report that was between the Ramses and someone that had sued, someone that they were suing for slander. There are a lot of litigious actions around this case. (laughs) There were. (laughs) They sued a lot of people. They did. And I think they won everyone. And Burke recently just won one last year, I believe. $750 million, yeah. wasn't it? Or 730 I think. You're right. Yeah. Oof. Crazy. Okay. So it 
says writings prepared by a person in the past in the normal course of business are referred to in the field as historical writings or course of business writings. In contrast, writings prepared on request for the purpose of comparison are referred to as request exemplars. The most reliable method of forensic document examination occurs when an examiner compares both historical writings and request exemplars to the question document. So what they wanted to do was gather handwriting samples from John and Patsy of like just stuff that they had written before, like letters they had sent mm -hmm. people, and then they did make them both copy the ransom note. Well, they read it out loud to them and had them write it down. Like we really just focus on mostly Patsy. Really, Patsy gets all the heat for handwriting, but they, nice. yeah, they, they <laughs> had a lot more people provide handwriting samples. Patsy and John, as I mentioned, Burke, their nine-year-old son, Melinda and John Andrew, who were uh, John's adult children from his first marriage. Fleet White provided a handwriting sample, as did Bill McReynolds, who played the Santa at their Christmas party. Also, their neighbor, Joe Barnhill, provided a handwriting sample as well. So we have like just a completely kind of random group of people that all provided their handwriting. Really only Patsy's makes the news. So most of my examination is going to be based around her. So she, as I mentioned, she Patsy had said in several interviews and this had been corroborated by the police giving the test that they read the ransom note out loud at a pretty brisk pace. So she had to write along like pretty fast. And mm -hmm. this makes sense to me if you are trying to get someone to reveal their true handwriting to you, you'd have to be writing pretty quickly because it would be very hard to write any differently than your like normal go-to if you're doing it really fast. So first we look at a historical writing. And if you want to pull up that document that I put in there, did you open Patsy handwriting samples? There is a doc on the top, um, which is a entry form for a pageant for John Bonet. It's, you know, this is Patsy maybe a year, maybe less beforehand. Obviously she's not under stress. She's writing, she's writing clearly, she's writing nicely. And typically in every other handwriting sample of Patsy's that I found like from the past, so they said like historical writings, she wrote in like a really pretty cursive. Uh -huh. This was the only one I could find where she printed. And I assume because it was like for an entry form where they needed to like get the- She had to print Exactly, mm -hmm. yeah, they had to get the spelling of John Bonet's name right and all that good stuff, so. You can kind of see how she writes Ramsey in print. You can see like even mm -hmm. when she's printing that like some of her letters still connect, such as like the D-E-R in Boulder are all kind of connected and the E-E-N mm -hmm. in green when she wrote that she had green eyes. Her uppercase M's in this note don't really look like the ransom note. You can see that like the middle point of her M goes almost all the way down to the bottom, like to the baseline. And her M's are like kind of looped, like they're not very pointed. The, the middle part of the M is, is pretty curved. Whereas the ransom note has very pointed M's and the mid, it only goes to like halfway down the letter. She also does not write a line across the top of the J in John, whereas the ransom note does. So like in her handwriting sample, she wrote Mr. and Mrs. John Ramsey. So you can see how she writes John normally. There's like no cross on the top of the J. I thought that was interesting. So that was really the only instance of printing I could find her. So let's look at what they called her request exemplar. I love these fancy terms. So this is Patsy writing the note as dictated with her right hand. 
So you can see she makes both types of lowercase a's throughout the document. She makes like what I will be referring to as a type A, which is like, like you would see it in a book. And then she makes a couple A's that are like your standard circle and line. I definitely do this myself. I've noticed like if I'm making like lettering pieces for people, I will absolutely, it's usually the R's that get me or I'll do two different R's, but I will like, I've been, I've seen myself write two different kinds of A's. So I don't think that's as weird, especially because again, she's, she's trying to write pretty fast. <laughs> she spells business correctly, which I noticed right away and possession. She nails those. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah, her lowercase y's have a very straight descender and the descender is like going to be your line that will go past the baseline. It'll go down, you know, like if you have a lowercase y or G or a letter like that. So hers, she are very straight. They do not really loop around at all. But if you look at the the ransom note, the descender of the Y not only has a loop, but it kind of goes what I would say is backwards and that the lowercase Y loops towards the right. Like it, like if I were to make a Y, I would loop up, you know, it would kind of loop to it with the line to the left. Whereas the ransom note, it just kind of gives like a quick tick to the right. So I thought that was really interesting to note. If you look at her uppercase Y's in like Patsy makes your V with a line under it and like a really nice print Y, mm -hmm. whereas the ransom note has again that curved, this would be an S under technically in a capital Y, but it's like the main line of the Y is curved again. It's not like the V uh -huh. with a line. I don't even do the V with a line. That's like super proper. And again, looking at, looking at lowercase G's, Patsy's consistently loop up fully. Like she loops them all the way up and it touches that descender line very consistently mm -hmm. throughout her writing sample. And whereas the ransom note have G's that have the descender that's almost two straight lines. Like it goes down and then makes a line to the left and they're like pretty straight. There's some variance in the ransom note of the descender of the G's. It's like the, the two straight lines is the most common. Like in no point does it loop fully back up. I thought that was pretty interesting. Let's look at lowercase t's. The ransom note flaunts a curve line where the ascender curves to the right. So I like if you had a t with like a serif on the bottom, essentially, they always have that curve. But if you look at Patsy's t's are like perfectly straight, but often in her handwriting sample, when the t is the first letter of the word, she actually writes a capital T. In fact, there hmm. are several words where she often writes in capital letters in some parts, like attache. If you look at hers, ATT are all capital, like two big capital T's. The C and the H appear to be capital. When she writes bank, it's with a capital B. For some reason, she writes bag in all caps as she's speeding through. <laughs> and as she writes tomorrow, again, the T is capitalized and both of her R's are capital. They're all like the same size. So it like it doesn't catch your eye at first of like, oh, there's two huge letters. Like as I'm looking at my typed notes, it looks ridiculous. Uh -huh. But she really does put like capital letters right in line. Again, she's speeding through it. So it's not going to be perfect with like her letter, like her historical writings where her letters are so perfect and the form is so nice and, and what have you. So looking at the lowercase Q's, this is a pretty unique letter. And actually in both cases, and the ransom note and Patsy's handwriting, they look very similar and that the descender loops back up to the right 
and touches that line again. So it kind of looks like uh, the number eight on both of them. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, that's a that's a cool one. I saw in some documentary where they're like, who writes a Q like that? And like, that was their hot take. And I'm like, they wrote one Q. Like, <laughs> I thought it was weird that that was like, that point is hit so hard. That's like, that's ridiculous. And it's like, well, okay, we have a lot of other stuff to look at. What I thought was the most interesting in the whole ransom note were the lowercase d's. Because if you look at those, I don't know a lot of people who make D's like that. My nephew does. He's left-handed. So the ransom note, the lowercase D's, are a single line. They're a loop around the D and up, as in ah. like the ascender. Like when I write a D, I go around uh -huh. the loop, I go up, and I go back down on the same line. Right. Unfortunately, with a Sharpie, you wouldn't really be able to determine like up and back down. But you can clearly see in the ransom note that there is no downstroke at all. They just are up. They're up like every single time and they're like kind of looped. Huh. And I thought that was a really unique style. So, of course, I zeroed in on Patsy's handwriting to see like, does she do that weird D? And no, girl, she doesn't. No. <laughs> like you can <laughs> see that not only does hers have a straight descender, but they almost have a little tail to the right on the end, which would mm -hmm. which would be indicative of someone who goes up the line and then back down because then that's how you're going to make that little loop. Not all of her D's have enough space after them to see that little loop. Some of them might connect quickly, but on the ones that have a little more space, you can see that. So that tells me that like she she does kind of retrace that line, which is again how, how most people make their D's. Lastly, I think lastly, her style of writing out numbers is really different than the ransom note. So picture someone is reading numbers to you. Like, how would you write those numbers down succinctly? Patsy kind of took a bold stance. She wrote out a lot of the words. She wrote out $118,000. <laughs> Whereas in my notes, it's dollar sign 118K. But she also writes $20 bills as two zero. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She so she kind of goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. She she only The only place she uses numbers. Oh, I should go back. And it's in the ransom note, $118,000 is written as dollar sign 118,000.00. I thought the decimal points were really weird in the ransom note. Those stuck out to me right away, like obviously in zero cents. Like, are you going to request $118,000.62? Like, I just like, it seems so extraneous, but isn't everything in this note. So you're right in that Patsy does write numbers sometimes. She wrote 100 and then the word dollar bills and 20, the number 20, and then the words dollar bills. Whereas the ransom note has dollar sign 100 and dollar sign 20, which is how I would think most people write $100 bills. Right. She is also, though, at this point, knowing that she's under scrutiny for this oh yeah like if you knew you wrote the note so, like, you would do it differently you would and she consistently does it differently which would lead you yeah. to believe either this wasn't her writing or she's like a mastermind of ransom notes which like i don't i don't think so i just don't think so but you could be miss west virginia yeah like well her major was in know. communications maybe like her minor was in ransom note writing her minor <laughs> So being Miss West Virginia, she literally was a professional interviewer. That's true. Mm -hmm. Like, that's kind of how I see her as she knows 
exactly what to say and how to say yeah, how to present that yourself. is what she is a professional in mm-hmm. you are so right not related well it's kind of related to the ransom note so you have these things put up i didn't realize that these were her so i thought that one of them was the true ransom note and then one of them was her like the official entry form and i was looking at it and i was like they're so clearly the same person like oh. i was having like <laughs> like mental like well look at those mm-hmm. r's and like the a's and the spacing and the s and the e and the y um are you comparing but- her entry form to her to her yes. handwriting. Yeah, I mean, I was it comparing is. two of her handwritings mm-hmm. together. The ransom note um, that she wrote for, like, when the police asked her to, told her to, is neater than her normal handwriting, which is interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, there's, it almost looks like, my opinion, it almost looks like her ransom note rewrite or her, her written ransom note for the police mm-hmm. looks like she was intentionally trying to change some things about her handwriting. It kind of does, or was she just like really hurt? Really nervous. Yeah, really, really moving quickly. Really I mean, I'd be really nervous. I also thought it was interesting on her, you can see on her version of the note that she started it in cursive. And they were probably like, no, yeah, Patsy. and they might have been like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you need to print this. So she's like, oh, right, right. Like, the, truly, I looked at so many other handwriting samples and mm-hmm. could only find the one where she was printing. So it seemed like she was a cursive gal. Of course, if you're going to write a ransom note, you're not going to write it in your like gorgeous cursive. That's too obvious. Right. So you did mention spacing of letters, mm-hmm. which is a weird part about the ransom note as well. Like the letters are shaky. The spacing is so random, not only between letters, but between words. And it does kind of look like maybe someone could be writing it with their non-dominant hand, perhaps. So Mm -hmm. let's look at the left-hand analysis of uh, both her and John's handwriting. I had a hearty giggle looking at these because this (laughs) is exactly what my left-hand handwriting samples would look like. It's like nearly unintelligible. It's They were not ambidextrous. No. (laughs) I looked up how many people were ambidextrous and it's about one percent of the population oh, not even me i have like again so much handwriting experience can't wear it with my left hand at all like it would it would look <laughs> just like this especially if you wrote it with a sharpie like look at their left hand handwriting with a pen you would not be able to read that in sharpie unless they were no. writing huge and really in like if you look at this like their two left-handed samples John's kind of does look more similar, even though they both, again, are are crazy. I'm sure if you wanted to to find a picture, you could see it. But John's letters are so crammed together that they would just be blurs in in Sharpie form. And Mm -hmm. uh, much like Patsy's right-hand handwriting that was torn apart, Patsy's left-hand handwriting made the cover of the National Enquirer with a cover that said, this is an exact match. And they like pulled, oh, no. yeah, they pulled four words out of her handwriting sample again of her left hand and pulled it from oh. the ransom note and are like, this is exactly it. But they picked four words out of the three pages of writing that like, yeah, kind of did look like it because it's like shaky, weird handwriting. It is shaky. Yeah. With that handwriting being like starting so rushed, so shaky, so nervous looking, and it kind of evens out. Like, maybe the person writing this, either their nerves subsided by the end, or they, like, got the hang of writing with their non-dominant hand. But I could write 
for 30 pages with my left hand and it would just look awful the whole time. I'm not going to get any yeah. better at it in three pages. If anything, it's going to get worse because <laughs> those muscles aren't right? actually practiced. And I'm like so, despondent, like, yeah. oh, this is hard. If it's written with someone's non-dominant hand, maybe it's possible that the letter writer started writing the note in their regular handwriting, which is that rough draft that was written and then thrown oh. away. And then they were like, that shit's like, this is, it's too obvious. I need to crumple it up and throw it in the garbage can, like right here in, in clear view. That'll <laughs> help. So and then they switched hands. So then I looked into like characteristics of writing with your non-dominant hand. Like are there things that maybe would indicate to professionals that this is what you're doing? And this is why I thought it was interesting that you mentioned spacing because one of the things mentioned is like, you know, like irregular spacing between letters and words, which of course we also have low level of control, totally. Abrupt directional change, which like kind of uncertain movements we see a lot of like the l's really struck me and that they were mm -hmm. super shaky like they were curved lines going down it says acute angles in connecting strokes and that some letters would be more angular than they typically would be aren't the c's kind of like that like the c's kind of make a point like it wouldn't it seems unnatural to me the C's. yeah there are a couple letters in the ransom note that do seem like oddly angular so i i thought it was interesting when i saw that on the list of like here's what it could you know here's what dictates a non-dominant hand do we also see poor line quality and a fine tremor which you definitely see a tremor in this letter could uh -huh. be nerves, could be someone writing with their non-dominant hand. So my conclusion, going over all of this handwriting, I really wanted to get out the tracing paper and a Sharpie and like just see how accurate <laughs> it would it. be. I just try it for myself. Time, time did not allow. I push these things off to the last minute all the time. But really from the evidence, from looking at Patsy's handwriting samples, from looking at what she provided from the police and comparing it to the ransom note, I don't think it was her. I'm not an expert. I'm just looking at the letter forms myself as uh -huh. like maybe a critical eye. Letter. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I definitely do note like, you know, how far up does this go and down and like I've studied different styles of cursive and script and font and like that kind of stuff. So I definitely am super interested in it. I wasn't convinced. I really wasn't. The only mm -hmm. similarity I saw was that Q. Sometimes the R's looked the same and that like they kind of looped up instead of turning back down. I thought it was interesting too. I noted that she sent out Christmas cards to massive amounts of people, mm -hmm. like handwritten Christmas cards. So there were actually a lot of people who had her handwriting available yeah. to them. And gave it up to the police. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are tons of historical handwriting samples for her. And like John's isn't too looked into. I did find a sample of his normal handwriting and he's got a hard slant to the left. It like goes the other way in that you would be holding, he said he was right-handed, but like if you were to hold your right hand kind of like curved around the top and, and wrote, mm. like his handwriting had such a distinct slant and it was like a mix of all capital and lowercase letters all together. It looked mm -hmm. like standard dad handwriting to me, like with yeah. a super slant. So I didn't see any of the others that were given. Because as we know, the media just honed it on Patsy here, but wasn't enough to convince me. Me, a layperson, <laughs> no knowledge. <laughs> so are we done with the handwriting? Yeah, that is that is what I I don't want to move on prematurely. Nope, okay. We're good. So now we're back to the nine one one call. Yes. 
and kind of digging a little bit deeper into that. And investigators were finding out more and more. Kim Archuleta was the 911 operator. She had said that she heard two to three voices after Patsy thought that she hung up. But after John Benet was found dead, she was pretty much immediately put on a gag order and wasn't allowed to speak. She also wasn't asked to speak at the grand jury that happened later. And she wasn't ever asked to give her opinion to anyone. Which is the weirdest thing if they like cops came to her house and told her she was under a gag order from discussing it, which would lead you to believe that they would ask for your testimony later. I mm-hmm. thought that was an implied part of it. And they're like, nah, we don't really need you, Kim. <laughs> the 911 call has been examined by a couple of groups, and they have all come to the same conclusion about what was said after Patsy hung up. It, but it is so bad. The audio is so bad. So I just like to say that before I say what they think was said. They think it was said, but the audio was so bad. That was awful. That. I tried to like put my biggest headphones on to hear edit, to hear if I could hear any words at all. No, I couldn't. It's all kind of mumbled. But the the experts, two different organizations, said that they heard John. It does sound like it him. Does. I feel yeah. like they heard John say, "We're not speaking to you." Patsy said, "What did you do? Help me, Jesus." And then theorized Burke said what did you find Hmm. I mean what do you think I think it sounds like a child at the end yeah it's definitely like a higher voice um really the only part that I was sure about listening to it was that it totally sounds like John you can hear him in the background which is not unexpected no because he would have been there the audio is so rough even I guess even if it's not exactly what was said I feel like it was a child's voice mm-hmm. and they told everyone that Burke was asleep they told everyone who would listen that <laughs> yeah they went really like, hard on that mentioning it to people this is really kind of for investigators starting to lay the groundwork of a theory that something happened in the house that these three knew about and were covering up mm-hmm. and that's what the 911 operator thought yeah she was very suspicious she was super suspicious because the truth is that whatever the audio said or didn't say Patsy turned off her franticness and that doesn't say that the family is guilty, but it says that maybe something was going on that they aren't telling us. And that Patsy had some control over her emotions at this time. Mm -hmm. Police started questioning Fleet White about when they found the body and he kept mentioning how odd it was that she was wrapped in a white blanket in a dark cellar and that John yelled found her before turning the light on. He thought it was odd because he didn't know how John could have seen her because she was wrapped in a blanket and you couldn't see anything. And it wasn't like a super clean basement. No, there was mold on the ground, which broke my heart further. Like confusing. And when Fleet did that, the Ramses really turned against him. It became this like, they kind of went from being besties to being nothing, like Fleet. Frenemies. Uh, actually, to being frenemies. Actually, at that point, the Ramses started pointing their finger at Fleet White. Oh. So Ooh. there were interviews where the Ramses started to say, like, I think that Fleet had some suspicious behavior around our wow. daughter. I think you should start investigating him further. And really, like other uh, Patsy said that Priscilla was jealous of her and that maybe the police should look into that more. You gave your other child to them as soon as this happened. (laughs) So I think it just, again, it doesn't say a lot, but it says 
kind of the life that they were living was very, I don't know, maybe inauthentic. Mm -hmm. There was a lot about image and yeah, I don't know how deep their friendships were. Yeah, just in general, it does kind of make you wonder. Boulder had only had 16 homicides in the last 10 years. So no, they were not very good at investigating from (laughs) just simply because they had lack of practice. So clothes weren't tested, crime scenes weren't roped off, parents weren't separated and interviewed, neighbors weren't questioned. Um, All of those things were missed that we kind of think like, gosh, I've watched a season of CSI. So I feel like this should, is common knowledge, (laughs) Yeah, but but it wasn't done. Um, One of the other things that kind of sticks out in this process was Burke's interview and the police kind of keyed in on this as well. Burke's interview when he was nine, it was kind of odd. He said some, he said some weird things like, He wasn't always emotionally uh, appropriate about JonBenet's death, I'll say. It's a very kind way to put it. (laughs) He seemed kind of excited about the media attention. He said things like, oh, well, I'm just going to be moving on now. Yeah. Um, It really changed my life. I'm just going to move on. That was really Yeah. But kids are really awkward. So I actually went and watched a bunch of other interviews of kids being interviewed oh, about kids dying in front of them. And all kids are pretty awkward. Mm. That's like the general consensus. Like <laughs> the kids that I saw like interviewed, maybe their sibling was killed by a drunk driver in front of them. Oh. And they also were like, there was no recognition of the true horror the tr- yes, there was kind of a similar to Burke's inappropriateness. There, there's just like an awkwardness about it. They don't really know what that means. It's almost like there isn't a knowledge of like, and I'm actually never going to see them again. Yeah, like, like that doesn't really hit kids. I feel like no, I think that takes longer than nine to for you to like understand permanence. Like we're past object yeah. permanence, and now we're on to like human life permanence phase and. Yeah, I just, I picture myself Uh, when I was nine years old and I was just so gangly, so awkward. (laughs) He has recently done an interview with Dr. Phil to try and clear his name because of all the speculation that he had something to do with her death. And that was odd. It's so gross. Like, it was odd. I did, though, as I was watching it go back and forth between thinking his behavior was suspicious to thinking that that's how I would act if I were on Dr. Phil. Right. (laughs) Because I'm awkward person and I smile when I'm uncomfortable which he did a lot of did a lot of smiling and then I found out that Dr. Phil and Burke have the same lawyer which I thought was super strange for for what like what are they defending against just because they're rich so they have a lawyer as you suppose I forgot the wealth factor again you're right (laughs) it kind of I felt like it made Dr. Phil's interview kind of a moot point like He wasn't Mm -hmm. unbiased. Burke was saying, like, these people have an agenda against me. And Dr. Phil was trying to clear his name, but Dr. Phil so clearly had an agenda for it. Like, there's just all agendas. And really, if he was trying to to clear his name, like, he's just made it way worse. He made it way worse. I think, wasn't this after, was it the CBS doc that he ended up suing? That's where he got that money from? Which, like, I thought the CBS doc was going to go a lot harder on what Reddit refers to as the BDI theory, the Burke did it theory. 
I don't know the lingo now, <laughs> but I thought it was going to be way more geared towards Burke than it actually was. So I was kind of surprised. Yeah, I didn't think that they were super keyed. I mean, they were keyed in on him, but I like to picture in Burke's interview with Dr. Phil, I like to picture his lawyer kind of behind Dr. Phil, like making faces at him, like frowning <laughs> and like being like, cut, can we, can we try that again? Burke, you're smiling like, can, again, bro. Can, can you ask him again? <laughs> this time, try not to smile. <laughs> and those were the best takes they got. Yeah, I mean, I watched that thing too and like, my skin crawled the whole time. It was I like I wanted to take a shower after I watched it. So of course then I had to read all about it and I thought that it was interesting that like Dr. Phil had gone on record to like be upfront about guys it's it's gonna come off weird and, and here's what he said. For twenty years he has been off the grid and my impression is he's socially awkward. People are going to be very interested in his demeanor and they're going to find his demeanor atypical. And we did, Dr. Phil. But, like, Correct. he's right in that, you know, as soon as this happened, his parents, like, really kept him away from not only the spotlight, but, like, the spotlight would involve him, like, going to school normally. So then he couldn't go to school anymore. And, like, he couldn't do any of his activities, provided he did any activities, uh, like, that he used to do and, like, the normal socializing that you would get. Yeah. He, their family lost all their friends. Yeah. Like everybody turned against the Ramses, And so like their whole life changed. Mm -hmm. It went from being like 2000 people going through their house to nothing. Right. Or people with a lot different motives going through their house. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so from the beginning, the police thought that the Ramses did it. It simultaneously, the DA wanted the Ramses to be left alone. And so it was kind of in this crazy cycle of chaos where the police were mad because they weren't getting any movement from the DA and the DA was mad because the police weren't looking at mm -hmm. other leads properly. So what are those other leads? Yeah, because if we're looking outside of anyone in the Ramsey household doing it, then we're looking at an intruder. We are. So they did have those 2000 people walk through their house. Any one of them could have seen pictures and gotten horrible ideas. I've even seen that John Bonet's um, dance studio had like an open policy, like an open door policy where what? they had like a viewing area where anybody from the public could go in and watch these little girls dance, Ooh. which I've, yeah, my immediate response is like, why, 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 why do you want, <laughs> yeah, that girl's just me why, out. why do you want girls? Men to be able to go into a dance studio and watch little girls do ballet and like that's a very 1990s ugh. thing to do <laughs> it is there was also a man named michael who lived in boulder he committed suicide a few days after the da was quoted on the news saying we have dna evidence and we are coming for you and then he committed suicide and um, some of his coworkers thought that he had done it based on some strange conversations that they had had with him there was a man named Gary Oliva who was a convicted pedophile that used to hang around her neighborhood, and he admitted to having an obsession with her. He lived down the street from her. Reading about this guy kind of makes me more than ever not want my kids to, like, play out in the yard. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, is this the guy that had her picture in his pocket? Yes. Yeah, so he was arrested years after her death and he had her picture in his pocket. Oh, I didn't know it was years. That's even creepier. Yeah. Oh. So there were just massive amounts of people surrounding John Bonet who like the more that they unravel, the less guilty the family looks, I think, because 
There's a couple other connections for this Alaba guy. JonBenet was found with marks on her back that some think were from a stun gun, and this man was found to have a stun gun. It's speculated that he would have used it to keep her quiet by knocking her out, but I kind of go back and forth on this because I've seen somebody tased before and it doesn't knock you out. It like makes you scream hysterically. Yeah, that would not subdue you. I also watch videos of people being tased to be like, oh, would, would this subdue a human? I'm like, no, yeah. it like gets your adrenaline going. Everyone like leaps up or over and is panting. And I'm like, this would not be quiet in a six-year-old girl. No. And a friend of Oliva claims that Oliva called him the day after JonBenet was killed and said over and over again, I heard a little girl. I heard a little girl. Oh. Um, the knots on the ropes that were found on her were also kind of a calling card of his. He had previously been arrested for strangling his mother. Oh, and oh. he used the same knots. What? In that situation. It seems like a lot bigger deal than me not never hearing about this. Yes. And the only because the media was so keyed in on the family. The only thing that eliminated him was the DNA, the mm, right. potentially corrupted DNA. Yeah, it could be a mixed sample. DNA has eliminated everybody, actually. And like we've said before, it's highly probable that it's corrupted. Mm. So it's not a true sample. There's another guy, John Mark Kerr. He was a school teacher and a raging pedophile who confessed to her murder in 2006 but it was just attention seeking. He actually wasn't involved at all. And the only reason that I bring it up is to kind of point out how sickening people are out there no kidding. and like how messed up the world is that he wanted so badly to take a part in this. Oh. He had diary entries where he had like imagined being at the murder and he like has been interviewed before saying that JonBenet has come to him and told him about what her death was like. And oh it's just my super- God. That's disgusting. Points to the craziness of people and points to like the sickness of the world. And yeah. so I think in that way, it will kind of take some pressure off of the family in a like, well, let's look at what is out there. Yeah. It's not all sunshine and roses out in the world. When we look at statistics for children being murdered, it's oftentimes the parents, but there is brokenness out there too, I think. So side note, this guy who claimed to be the murderer, but actually wasn't, but he wanted to be, he was released and he's now living in the Pacific Northwest under a new name. Oh yeah. I saw him interviewed in one of the specials and you thought he looked creepy in whatever year he was arrested and he did. And then wow. you see him again and you're like, Oh wow. 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 Just oof. Yeah. I can see why of all the people who want to be involved in a murder, this guy, and he was just, he was unhinged in his interview. He was like he was. mad about the wrong stuff. He just, I felt like they kind of, they did a bad even inviting him. I bet the producers were just kind of like, oh, like, oh man, just who who called this guy? Like, I'm, I'm sure they regretted it because he just looks crazy. And to me, it made the whole like documentary like uh, is this like some kind of weird ploy for attention from everyone right yeah there were 38 pedophiles living within a couple miles of John Bonet. whoa that's way too many pedophiles that's way too oh. many there should be <laughs> there should be like an allowable amount yeah, it's, it's, it's 38 is way above <laughs> that threshold Bill, Mc, Bill McReynolds was the Santa Claus that was at the Ramsey's Christmas party that year and the year before nice. and people remembered him 
pulling her aside that night, the night of her murder, I guess I don't know if it was the night of her murder or the night before, but he said that Santa was going to be paying her a special visit. And people remembered that and thought that it was strange. I read that too. And I also read where she had told one of her like childhood friends the same story. Like she was over at a friend's house and she told her friend and her mom that Santa was going to be coming to visit after Christmas. And oh. this mom was like, I should have written down their names. I didn't. It, it, you can find it. They're, they've spoken up about it. And the mom was like, oh, no, honey, like Santa's coming tomorrow night. I think this is like Christmas Eve that she was uh -huh. overplaying. And she's like, nope, Santa's coming for me after Christmas. And okay, yes, that sounds super suspicious, but it had been theorized that since the Ramseys were flying to Charlevoix the next day, which was like where, oh. from where John was from in Michigan, that they were maybe going to have another Christmas there. Mm -hmm. I think probably they were meeting his other children. So mm -hmm. it, like they kind of were going to have another Christmas at that point. So it could be like just a six-year-old excited to get more presents and wanted to tell her friend about it it could be but he was also creepy oh yes she had given him a vial of gold glitter and i think she did that kind of thing just like she knew when people needed special attention or like extra attention when people weren't oh. feeling loved she would want to um go out of her way to make them feel better so he, she had given him that thing of gold glitter he still has it and he keeps it with him all the time and he said that he's going to have his ashes spread with the gold glitter. oh yes i hoped you were gonna bring that. this up because what? and he said that like he feels closer to her than his own kids and grandkids which mind you he's met this girl twice like it's not like he's a family friend. Hmm. He's the, he plays Santa Claus at Christmas. Hmm. And so to say that he feels closer to her than his own kids and grandkids is a big statement. That makes me equally <laughs> sad and creeped out. DNA also eliminated him, though. That makes sense as to why he submitted a handwriting <laughs> statement, though. At first, I was like, oh, they got the Santa in on it. Okay, weird. Right, super random. <laughs> that makes way more sense. Oh, and this was the guy, too. I do remember reading about him. Bill and his wife was Janet, and yes. Janet had written a play decades previously oh, yes. about, like, a girl that was murdered in a basement or something along those lines. Uh -huh. And it wasn't it Bill whose, like, daughter and her friend were kidnapped, like, 20 years to the day before John Monet was? Yes. So they had a lot of weird connections to this case. There were a lot of weird connections. I see why they handwriting sampled him, but uh -huh. weird. Patsy passed away from ovarian cancer in 2006. She was officially exonerated two years later in 2008 when the Boulder DA Mary Lacey uh, exonerated based on DNA evidence that she said put an intruder in the home that corrupted DNA. It was found on John Bonet in her underwear and on her long johns. A lot of experts, including the governor of Colorado and his team, say that this wasn't the job of the DA to exonerate mm -hmm. and that the DNA that she was using to exonerate the family wasn't conclusive and that it could have easily been multiple people contributing pieces of their DNA to a single profile. 
meaning that they're looking for a DNA profile that doesn't exist. Yeah, it kind of seems like that's what's happening, as if they've ran it past everyone that they could in the case. And it's been in CODIS for decades. It's been like, uh -huh. out, you know, now that we're getting into like the ancestry component of genealogy and crimes, like there's been nothing, like not even anything close. Uh -huh. Definitely smells of corruption. Following when John Bonet was found, they had a grand jury to decide if Patsy and John should be brought to court over this matter. And the grand jury voted that, yes, they should go to court. And then the DA never actually prosecuted. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, to me, screams like, America, like, <laughs> right? you, the people, deserve a right to vote. Mm -hmm. And then Your like, opinion matters. Oh, but that isn't what I wanted, so I'm not going to yeah, listen to it sorry. anyway. It's kind of how I heard that whole thing unravel. And, you know, <laughs> like, you're... It's Really, that's a really accurate interpretation because I did see in a documentary they oh they had oh what's the guy's name Steve oh they had you know Steve where is he <laughs> Steve where are you oh yeah I did see that they had Detective Stephen Thomas who was like prior assigned to the case they had him on one of these documentaries that oh geez when it was just a few years ago that like it was cool again and all these documentaries came out <laughs> and he, he had stated in that documentary, okay, this is June 1998, he had said that the police department, the DA's office, and the FBI had gathered together to discuss if they were going to, like, get a grand jury to review the case. And they straight up asked DA Alex Hunter, like, I'm paraphrasing, I tried to be close, he said, like, there's a little girl in the ground, are we even going to do anything to find answers? And, like, Detective Thomas says that he, like, remembers leaning up against that brick wall, which, like, must be vivid memories for people, as we had just, just mm -hmm. touched upon before. It did just Yeah, and he, that Alex Hunter, the DA, had responded that he, quote, had to talk to his people because this was a political decision. And Detective yeah. Thomas remembers being, like, I think that was, like, right before he left. I believe he left the case after that. He did. Mm -hmm. He did. Yeah. How frustrating. It's crazy. So the the grand jury wasn't wasn't voting based on Patsy having murdered John Bonet. They were voting based on her covering up the murder. Uh, it was a charge of neglect that she allowed somebody to hurt John Bonet, basically. Wow. A lot of people do think that Patsy was the murderer, and they kind of bring it back to the pageants, like she had an obsession with appearance. Hmm. Family friends remember that in the weeks leading up to her death, John Bonet was having problems with bedwetting. And those friends said that it drove Patsy nuts. The fact that there was urine in her underwear makes people speculate that Patsy flew into a rage and hurt John Bonet with a blow to the head. Mm. And then it's speculated that she covered the whole thing up. Damn, like to fly into that much of a rage? I don't know. I've never potty trained a child. You've potty trained three, perhaps more. Yeah. There is a thing like... I don't remember what it's called, but there is a thing of like hurting a child because they can't potty train or like this frustration. Oh. Like you hear stories of mothers who like drown their kids in bathtubs mm. and like mothers who drive off of cliffs with their kids yeah. in the car because they're just like done mm -hmm. with the like it's a form of depression and all of that. But I think because of the grand jury, they had all of the evidence before them and they didn't think that Patsy had done it. They thought that she covered it up, though. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of thought that one of the more likely suspects was Burke. This was always before I looked into it. Now I'm looking at that Oliver guy being like, if they use the DNA to to exonerate him, man, the same knot on the, yeah. on the growth. 
Like, that's crazy evidence mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, he already strangled someone too. Yeah. Just what I think based on what I'm seeing is that it is plausible to me that with how obsessed with appearance Patsy and John were, that if if Burke hurt John Bonet accidentally or not, I do think that she would have gone to any length to cover it up. Police took pictures that day and did DNA te- or fingerprint tests on a bowl of pineapple and milk left in the kitchen. And the bowl had Burke and Patsy's fingerprints, but not John Bonet's. But John Bonet had a piece of pineapple in her stomach when she was found. Yeah, I believe in the autopsy report it said like fruit or vegetable matter such as pineapple. Yeah. And everyone just brushes by this bowl of pineapple and milk. Why are we mixing <laughs> these things? Have you ever eaten pineapple with milk on it? I have no idea. I kind of want to try it And then the other thing that kind of sticks out to me is that they always say like her friend, Patsy's friends came over and cleaned. And I was like, what are they cleaning? This was like right on the kitchen table. Right. Yeah, I heard that too. Luckily, they didn't clean it up Mm -hmm. because it is evidence. I mean, the fingerprints on it could have been from putting the bowl away from the dishwasher. Totally. I think people get really stuck on the fact that it messes up the timeline that the Ramses provided. That's true. Like if your children were sleeping when you got home, like John had said that John Bonet was asleep, he carried her upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said that like Burke went to bed soon after that, and they both deny ever giving him pineapple, which is like this pineapple thing bothers me because like hey, I'm like shut up about the pineapple, like just I, but also it like it really throws a wrench into their whole statement where they're like no we. We never did this. And, like, why would you so vehemently deny pineapple if you, like, fed your kid a late-night snack? They're like, yeah, he wouldn't shut up. So I gave him, a like, a huge heaping bowl of pineapple, which is also weird. Because it looks like a larger serving than you would give a child. Right. So what's speculated is actually that Patsy had nothing to do with the snack and that mm. Burke got himself a snack. Oh, Yeah. And then John Benet. So it kind of looks like somebody opened up a can of pineapple and dumped the whole thing in. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Oh, and the spoon. Wasn't this where we, where she had talked about the spoon? Yes. Patsy denies having anything to do with it because the spoon is mismatched from the bowl. It's far too big. It's far too big. (laughs) I would never, I would never do that. What a thing to deny. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Right, that would totally scream of a kid opening a jar of pineapple at night, like, hey, hey. And then he eats, like, what, two pieces and leaves it on the counter? I know, and it's like, this is gross. <laughs> like, what's what was on I pineapple? pineapple. <laughs> but it's suggested that Burke was eating the pineapple and Jean Benet came and grabbed a piece, which made him mad, and he flipped. And there was a giant maglite flashlight. Did you ever have one of these? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They are heavy. They are. That's absolutely a weapon. Um, it is a weapon. The Ramses definitely distanced themselves from the flashlight. Like when they were questioned on it, they said, like, that's not our flashlight. I don't know whose flashlight that is. That wasn't in our house before. Hmm. Um, and then one of their friends came forward and was like, no, guys, like in front of police. It was epic. No, guys, <laughs> like we gave that to you for Christmas. Oh. Like that was like, that's what we gave you for Christmas. And they're like, Shut and so. <laughs> Anywho, it's theorized that he used it to cause the skull fracture. And then his train set matches the marks that could also be the taser marks. Oh, I forgot but it, about the train tracks. Yeah. Yeah. They, it lines up pretty perfectly. His train set, she has marks on her body that, you know, we, we said before, could they be taser mm-hmm. marks? But the train set matches it actually perfectly. 
So this would be like he accidentally knocked her unconscious and then as a nine-year-old who doesn't understand any of these things at all, grabbed his train tracks and just kind of hit her. Was like poking her, trying to wake her up. Uh, yeah, I suppose. And they had said that like train tracks were found in his bedroom and also, of course, in the basement where the train room was, which was the room where she was found was right off the train room. It was. I, I guess there is like some issues with that story too though like how did she get down to the basement after being whacked on the head or was she whacked on the head down in the basement that's true could a nine-year-old like take her through the whole house she had scrapes on her legs like she had been dragged Hmm. it does seem like a stretch to me though too Mm. but then if it's not from train if those marks aren't from train tracks what are they from yeah (laughs) because i don't think that they're from no, I don't either. That is, it seems to be a, a theory that was later proven not to be too evident. And like mm-hmm. how her body was moved to the basement, it was interesting that it was covered up in a sheet. And like, because mm-hmm. that, of course, would indicate that you like have some kind of respect or care for the person. Normally, if you don't mm-hmm. know the person that you've murdered, you just, you just leave them uncovered. But that also reminds me of something that bothered me about when you were saying that Fleet was kind of weirded out by how quickly John found her. So now you are cursed like I am from having seen the crime scene photos. And there is a photo of a blanket on the ground in the wine cellar, right? Saw that one. But John picked her up and brought her up immediately. So yeah. how, what is, is it they take the sheet back to the basement and like ball it up on the ground and we're like, that's probably what it looked like. John, make it look like it did before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering that too, or if he took her out of the sheet and brought her upstairs. That could be. And wasn't there like a random nightgown in there too? I read that there was like a nightgown wrapped know. up with the blanket that was, that she was wrapped in that kind of looked like oh. maybe someone took it right out of the dryer. And that was in there, like, kind of clung to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it was oh, like, why was this uh-huh. nightgown placed there? Oh, I saw some pictures of it. File under photos that made me sad. Yeah. So Burke was kind of described as an introvert who was jealous of John Bonet. That's how, quote, friends of the family. These friends. <laughs> described him. He had hit his sister before with a golf club. But I think that's pretty normal childhood behavior, accidentally hitting yeah. someone or like not knowing cause and effect oh, of that sure. kind of thing. I don't think that it makes you a murderer because if it does, then I have to be worried about my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's such normal behavior. Absolutely. Accidentally hitting your sibling is like a rite of passage. It is. Even if she has to get stitches and then gets plastic surgery to cover it up later. <laughs> Let's let's add the wealth factor in. That's true. Mm-hmm. What I do think is odd and isn't talked about is that friends of the family, these friends, they keep coming up. <laughs> they say that he was so jealous of his sister that he smeared poop on her Christmas gifts that year. Oh, Ern, yes. Let's talk about poop. So, and I did find it in the police reports that yeah. found it on on her candy from that year and then housekeepers were interviewed and they had said that they found that burke had pooped in her bed before oof yeah that's that's interesting so i i hadn't looked too much into the poop aspect (laughs) until i was reading reddit randomly one day i say randomly like i don't read it every day but i love this subreddit called am i the asshole 
where people submit stories and just get a verdict if they were the asshole or not. Really awesome. And someone had submitted a story that talked about his wife uh, who suffered from a condition called CNE. And of course, I had to Google this. And for all you Redditors out there, if you do find this post, absolutely was this guy the asshole. I'm not going to get into it. So I looked up CNE, and that is chronic neurotic encopresis, which is like a feces-related disorder, mm -hmm. I guess you could say. Um, there's two variations of this encopresis, typically referred to as voluntary and involuntary. Involuntary involves a child becoming constipated and avoiding using the bathroom because it's, it's painful. That's a whole other thing. The voluntary encopresis involves like normal stool that's it's not a constipation issue and it's just a kid that's past toilet training age, essentially pooping in inappropriate places. What I thought was interesting, you did mention that Burke had like smeared feces on the wall. I read that that was during Patsy's first bout of cancer. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of ties in where it's like, oh, he's just, he's lashing uh -huh. out. And I did read that um, 30 to 50% of children with encopresis issues have a like comorbid emotional or behavioral disorder with the highest uh, being a 12% comorbidity with oppositional defiant disorder. Wow. So it's like truly it can be correlated with like acting out like you have big emotions as a little kid and you, and you don't know what to do with them. And this is what some kids come up with. So in other cases, it can happen as a result of like a poor reaction to toilet training. Maybe they started too young or and this is a like specific draw from an article I read. Maybe the discipline for accidents was too harsh for the child. Hmm. That was interesting. So as I Googled this disorder from Reddit, I started reading about what could cause it. And I was like, wait, this sounds like Burke Ramsey. So then <laughs> I, I started doing way more research into it. And, you know, maybe it could be poor toilet training experience, could be severe discipline. Of course, in severe cases, it might happen to a kid who has had a very traumatic experience, such as abuse, mm -hmm. which is thrown around a lot in these cases. It also is five times more common in boys than girls, which I like, I wonder why. Yeah. Hmm, I don't know. But the, the biggest tip that I could find to help your child heal from encopresis, because it's like mortifying, right? You got to go to school. A lot of these kids like can't contain their bowels. They're like really upset about it. Or if your kid is lashing out at you in anger, hands down, the number one thing you're supposed to do to help your child through this is not show anger. Huh. Like don't, you know, heavily discipline for this. And it's interesting knowing that John Bonet had like aneurysis issues, which is bedwetting, right? Like if Burke had had issues related to toilet training and, and John Bonet had issues related to toilet training. What you can see is that like both children raised by Patsy have issues past that toilet training age. True. And I also read that, and I don't know how true this is, apply that disclaimer to everything that I'm saying because it's just off the internet. Some sources had said that Burke was kept in diapers until he was three and in pull-ups until he was six because of these issues. And it just kind of leads more credence to the theory that like this was really upsetting to Patsy. She did have a lot of adverse mm -hmm. reactions to it and like maybe she did display a lot of anger related to toilet training to get to Two children that had like really adverse reactions to it she did yeah it could also have been like an exhaustion like their life sounds a little bit crazy and hectic yeah, and she had cancer for a 
big chunk of this. And time she had cans yeah. for a chunk of that time. So like having pull ups, but it would make it easier. Mm-hmm. But like six years old, I don't know how old typically children are kept in diapers or pull ups. I guess I feel like it's getting older and older. No. <laughs> Because parents are getting it, like, it's just hard. Like, that's a hard part of parenting. Mm -hmm. And so it's becoming more, like, in my uh, opinion, not expert opinion, I feel like I'm just noticing a trend where it's becoming more and more common Mm -hmm. because it's becoming more and more acceptable to have your five-year-old in pull-ups. But I just had a foster kiddo who was in pull-ups as a six-year-old. It's weird because, like, he didn't want to talk about it. Like, there was a lot of shame in him. Oh, even. Like when I wasn't like, I can just imagine because at that point you kind of know what's going on, you know what appropriate is and that you're like not within appropriate bounds. It's just so crazy. And so for, for Patsy, so concerned with image, that would have been a hard nut to crack for her. Mm -hmm. Her and John had so much invested in their appearance that I do think that they would have done anything to cover it up. But then I also look at it and I'm like, good gracious, JonBenet was such a public figure that she was so available to anybody else. Yeah. She was kind of famous in her little town and she was provocatively dressed and paraded around. I don't think that was the intention of her life, but that was kind of how it could be received. So there were so many people who had access to her. One of the documentaries that I watched, her dance teacher said like that they only did appropriate dances and they were very careful about it. And then it cut to a scene with John Bonet with like lash extensions and like hair and her whole makeup. And she was in this little outfit and she did a big wink to the camera and then sang a song called I Want to Be a Cowboy's Sweetheart. Ooh, bad luck, pageants, bad bad luck. luck. I think (laughs) she was very over-sexualized, even if that wasn't the intention. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean people didn't take it it Yeah, though there's a lot of suspicious things. The 911 call, the note, John finding her with the light off. Those things don't actually prove anything. And this case is still being investigated. It's not a cold case. It's still open and it's just a mystery because of DNA. All the suspects were let off and here we sit. So what do you think about it? Oh, man, I, I only divided my notes in evidence that the family was involved and evidence that the family wasn't. And as I'm scrolling through, we really covered most of the points that I had that said, yeah, they really could be involved. You know, I, I did do a little research into like child homicide statistics and then quickly dropped that because this is awful and that was awful. And like, I just... I, been kind of overwhelmed with how terrible and sad it is, but I found a really interesting quote from the U.S. Department of Justice's Juvenile Justice Bulletin from 2001, and it says, Two characteristics that particularly distinguish the homicides of young children from those of other juvenile victims are that homicides of young children are committed primarily by family members, 71%, and the common use, 68%, of personal weapons such as hands and feet to batter, strangle, or suffocate victims. So it really does seem like statistically it would be a lot likelier that her family was involved and like as a person who is super logical and also just ridden with anxiety, I rely a lot on statistics to help me understand like (laughs) is this a logical reaction? Like, is this the most reasonable thing that could happen? Like, these are questions I ask myself all the time. And like, statistics and reason would say it's most likely for the family to be involved somehow. Uh-huh. Absolutely. It's it's incredibly rare that like any stranger 
completely unknown to the family's life would come in and like attempt to terribly kidnap their daughter and then murder her and what bothers me maybe the most about like the kidnapping gone wrong theory is like if they wanted money if money was the true motivation here even if she had passed away somehow during like this botched kidnapping you could still get the money if you took her with you Mm -hmm. Why would you leave the body behind and, like, just nullify your entire kidnapping intention? I don't understand that. For all of my notes that are under the, well, maybe the family's not involved section, it's just, like, all this evidence of them, or not even evidence, it's all of my opinions of them being like, why did you do it this way? Why did you do this so badly? Like, it's, like in my notes is here, if the Ramses did stage it, why wouldn't they have done a better job? Like, why wouldn't they have made it really obvious that there could have been an intruder, you know? Leave a door slightly ajar, like, swinging in the winter wind or something. Uh-huh. Like, that would make it pretty obvious. And John had told the police that he checked all the doors and they were locked. Why would you say that if you were staging the house for an intruder? Like, so much of it looks like it was staged like the way things were placed uh-huh. the way because he ran right to the basement like all these things made it look like they were in control like trying to create this narrative but they did such a bad job <laughs> at doing it they really did like there's so many things where it's like dude if you just didn't fess up about that like john was very open with the police that's like oh yeah i i bet i know where they got one hundred eighteen thousand dollars. that was the amount of my bonus why would you say that like, if, you, if you're like, yeah, I picked a number that I totally am just very familiar with from this past week. Maybe they wanted to make it look like it was someone from his work. Uh-huh. Like, oh, he must be targeted through his job. But there's so many facts that they brought up that to me, like, you would just never raise if you were trying to cover your tracks. So all of my, my thinking as to why they didn't do it, there's not a lot of solid evidence that they weren't involved. No. Because there really isn't a lot of solid evidence at all there isn't no. <laughs> the one piece of dna that we have is nothing yeah i just man do you think it will ever be solved not if we continue using that one piece of dna no <laughs> i don't true i do have a couple of odd random things there's a theory that she was involved with jeffrey epstein epstein oh i can never say jeffrey epstein's fiance's name starts with a g mm. It's like a GH. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. I hear they're total scum. Maxwell people, so is her last doesn't name. Doesn't matter. There is a picture mm-hmm. floating around the interwebs that looks like Jeffrey Epstein's fiance with John Bonet. Oh. And they actually, the Ramses and this Maxwell woman and Jeffrey Epstein have the same lawyer. This lawyer. So he's everywhere. This lawyer. It's the lawyer. The lawyer did it's it. The lawyer. <laughs> There's also, there was a theory, a very short-lived theory, that Katy Perry is actually oh, John. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. like a 10-minute theory mm-hmm. that people hopped on because they do look kind of similar, but I think it kind of ended with that. Like, they look similar. Yeah, then somebody did a quick Goog and were like, they weren't born in the same year at all. I was like, okay, <laughs> well, we tried. And then I found some similar cases, too. I mentioned Mm -hmm. Madeline McCann. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just similar in how the mother reacted to kind of like not thinking about the other kids in the house, but the media's reaction and the parents' reaction were very similar. It was like watching a mirror. (laughs) And then there was also another woman named Darlie Rowdier. She 
was actually convicted of killing oh, her children. Yeah. We've talked in, about this woman before. Yes, in a like cover up, like she made it mm-hmm. look like an intrusion. Crazy nine one one call. The nine one one call sounds like Patsy's sister is calling nine one one. Like it sounds so similar. Mm-hmm. This woman still denies having anything to do with her kid's death. Is she in jail now? She is, okay, yeah. I she thought was. so. So when things are all said and done, I think you can see how polarized this case is and how kind of black and white. Like there are two opinions and there's nothing in between basically. And the experts are just as torn as the public is. The media is very one-sided that the family did it, but I feel like the public is kind of torn between the family did it or an intruder did it. But we want to make sure that we honor her and who she was before this. And we want to remember her for who she was more than a pageant girl. And we want to honor her by keeping her case open and continuing to talk about it, which will help lead to more information on her death and just more investigation. If you want more information, some of the things that I looked into was... Oh, yeah, source time. CBS aired a docu-series in 2016 called The Case of John Benet Ramsey. And one of the best things about this was that it brought together a group of specialists. It was just a very well done documentary. It was. It was they really rebuilt her house. Yes, that I had that in all capital letters. They recreated the house, which is creepy. They did a really good job. They did. And they also brought in a child to smash a skull covered in pig skin and hair with a flashlight. They did. And they came to the conclusion that a child could break a skull open. Yeah, easily. That was there. They did it really easy. Um, I also read, I have to go get a drink of water because my voice is all cracking. Mm-hmm. I also read the book by John and Patsy Ramsey called The Death of Innocence. Oh, you did? So that kind of goes, wow. you know, there's such polarizing views. So I wanted their, their opinion. Yeah. So a lot of documentaries are against the family. And so I wanted the family's mm-hmm. opinion. How was it? Was it a good book? Uh yeah, I don't really like true crime <laughs> books. books. I like true crime, but it I honestly when I read it, I was not giving them a fair chance because mm. I was still in the mindset of like, of course you're guilty. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't yet. Now I feel like I'm kind of more middle of the road, but when I read it, I was definitely in the mindset that they were guilty. That's so fair. I will say that I didn't maybe give it a fair chance, but I also read the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. Um, a lot of the interrogation tapes are available online on YouTube. You can yeah. watch almost all of the interrogation tapes. Mm-hmm. There's 48 hours footage. And then another good documentary is the ID documentary called An American Murder Mystery. Oh, yep. I have that one written down as well. I watched both that one and the case of JonBenet Ramsey like back to back one day because I was uh-huh. like, let's see everyone's bias. And I definitely agree that the case of was much more interesting, just like due to the panel of experts that they brought in. Mm-hmm. I thought they did a better job at being objective, even though that was, again, the one that Burke sued for $750 million and won. And he won. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's important to put. Mm-hmm. Another super random thing that I forgot to say at all when I was talking about Fleet White, but I see it here in my notes. He actually wrote an open letter to the people of Colorado. So this is their old best friend. Wow. Who kind of had a big falling out. And then they started doing the finger pointing game Mm -hmm. with Fleet White. He wrote an open letter to the people during the whole grand jury thing. And it was like 
the longest and most confusing letter that I have ever read in my entire life. Like, Interesting coming off this ransom note. Super interesting. It was an open letter to the people of Colorado, and I think it was in the Denver Post, Dear which Colorado. is the paper. And it was like, did it take up a full page of the newspaper? I think probably. Whoa. It was so long and it made no sense to me. I kept re-looking for it, thinking that I stumbled upon something not related to the John Benet Ramsey case at all. <laughs> oh, wow. But yeah, it's super interesting to kind of see evidence of things crumbling, like the their friends kind of all turning against them and mm-hmm. like their whole life just must have been it wasn't just losing a daughter like they lost everything i feel like they, really did. they lost everything that they had built up yeah they lost the rest of their lives essentially too yeah i mostly relied on different websites i found several good websites that had a lot of years of data and collections <laughs> of documents and it truly disturbed me how many documents were available Almost everything was up there. So um, a website called wehaveyourdaughter.net had... Did you look at that one? No, I can't go to that website. (laughs) Yeah, they had like tons of evidence. They had audio, they had video, they talked about the DNA, and then they had a whole document section, which has the ransom note, it has the autopsy report, it has the Boulder police report from when they visited... It had an interesting letter from a language expert named Dr. Donald Foster to Patsy. He thought she was innocent and he wanted to help and like, please give me a call at your utmost haste. And it was like very formally worded. I didn't bring it into this because we we read so many letters, but check it out. We have your daughter.net. And apparently later he flip flopped when the Boulder police called him as a witness and was like, she totally (laughs) did it. So what the heck, everyone reading the handwriting. So that website was really interesting. It also had the DA's letter that she wrote to the public in which they were exonerated. Um, mm-hmm. Patsy, of course, posthumously, posthumously. Yeah. Um, another one that was the most helpful for me was a site that was johnmanayramsey.pbworks.com. Um, hmm. They had, holy cow, this website was thorough. It has like, it looks like maybe an old wiki site or like a SharePoint site that I would make for work. So it's like pretty basic in display. But, like, functionality had everything. It had the timeline of every day, like, notable events beforehand, the day of, the day after, and, like, broke it down hour by hour. It had all the evidence laid out. There was, like, tabs for pineapple. There was tabs for sexual (laughs) abuse. And, like, it covered everything. So I spent hours pouring through that website. I have, I got many other listed, but truly those are the two that I just read and read and read. Of mm-hmm. course, I went on Reddit and read and everyone's on, crazy I theories. I still don't understand Reddit. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't know how it works. I just need to stop like following every crime that I research on Reddit because now my whole Reddit feed is going to be murder and missing people instead of Animal Crossing and Zelda, which is what I want it to be. <laughs> I want it to be a happy place. So maybe I'll have to make another Reddit account just for this. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I was just shocked at how much was available and like how much was available that like wasn't publicly talked about there was so much more than you would ever know from just watching any of the documentaries what is your next case going to be 
So one that I wanted to dive into uh, was the case of Alyssa Cherney. Mm. I want to visit it because it kind of just had a resolution. It's just been oh, really? in the media lately. Um, yeah, not, I don't want to spoil anything, but it like it kind of kind of has a resolution, which I felt we needed a happy ending after this case. We definitely do. So I want, yeah, I wanted to find something that wasn't like, well, we'll never know anything. Uh, have a good night. Like I, yeah, I needed some, some closure. So this one has partial closure. It also has a lot of like feel good stuff and that her sister like really hit social media hard to make her case known. And she, she did it. She did it. Yeah. She got it out there. She got the results that she was looking for. So that's cool. And that's what we'll do next month. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited too. And I'm so glad that we got to cover this. I'm also so glad that it's over because this is all I've been able to think about. I don't know if I'll ever be able to wipe it out of my brain, but at least now I can stop being like, well, I should really look into Encopresis. I should really look into this. <laughs> I, I need to stop researching this. So I'm it's glad. It's true. I'm actually glad that this research time has made me be more open-minded about the family because I've always yeah. been pretty hard on them and kind of realizing too how skewed some documentaries can make the information. Mm -hmm. They usually have a an opinion. They do. That's one of the reasons why I really like podcasts and YouTube and getting true crime information. I think a lot of the kind of armchair detectives like we are can have less of a bias. We can go mm -hmm. into it with more of an open mind than somebody who's making a documentary trying to get a specific audience or trying to get a specific point across or maybe being paid by someone. It's just great. I don't know. <laughs> I hate to say I was pleasantly surprised that I changed my mind about that, but like. Yeah, I didn't expect to be so torn either. I thought that maybe evidence would show me clearly one way or another, but like, I don't have a conclusion for this. We uh -huh. don't know. I hope that we know if there's life on other planets. That's my big number one. But now number two right behind it is I want to know what happened to John Bonet. <laughs> I really Poor do. John yeah. She's Did you have like... any John Bonet related cries during your research? I told you about uh... one. I had another this afternoon. No, but I have more like panic attacks mm. because I have children who are hurting. Yeah, that would be awful. I've definitely had like... Are we sure the doors and windows are locked? Like, better right. go check those again. No kidding. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for sitting with us and discussing the case of John Bonet Ramsey. We try to do our best to honor her. It's like this little girl did not deserve any of this. Her, mm -hmm. I mean, just, oh, man, the more you look into it, the more it just becomes evident that no matter what happened, she is just, just a true victim of whatever it was. It's, it's awful what happened to her. She was so young, so cute, and just so sweet. Like, everyone who talked about mm -hmm. it said she was the sweetest thing. So I really appreciate you giving us, it's probably going to be several hours of us talking about it. it is. Getting her story out there. Just bringing it to your mind again. You know, if you if you want to do your research, we provided you a good start. You can always use that as a jumping off point and see what you think. I, I encourage you always with every story that we talk about to, to dive into it yourself and see what your opinion is. And we will look forward to speaking with you next month of the case of Alyssa Turney and giving you one that has a little bit more of an ending. Yeah. Well, thanks for sitting with us, guys. We'll talk to you next month.
That happened to oh. us in college. Oh no! <laughs> like, I remember like having the windows open in the snowstorm. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, we had the windows open and the heat was just cranking, and yeah. I'm like, no. <laughs> and it wasn't even that cold. It like didn't make a difference because it was 67 degrees out, and I'm like, finally, Wisconsin. I always want you to be warm, but yeah, no. <laughs> okay.